I don't know. It was like it was uh, after a real long day. Uh, we did the the town wide garage sale. So um, we did it last year as well. So our entire like our front porch and our walkway uh, going up to the uh, up to the sidewalk was one big sale. And um, you know my wife Denise, she does a great job. You know making it into like a store. And our porch, everyone was like, oh, wow, it's like a boutique because the porch is, is like, perfect. It's so weird because um, this house is, like, over 100 years old. And um, what a lot of people did, they had these porches. They, uh, they, they sealed them in. You know, it was sort of a free way of adding another room to your house, right? But then you didn't have the porch anymore. Obviously, 100 years ago, there really wasn't, like, uh, you know, air conditioning and stuff. And people would hang out in the porch and, right – which is a great place to be because you're here and then you're visible to the people walking by. You say hello. You get to know people. Like, here are some people walking by with weird multicolored straps they're wearing. <laughs> wow. Well, I guess it's to make you more visible at night. Yeah. Interesting. So what is this now? See, I, I was just mentioning it. Wow. Psychedelic. Yeah, multicolored, uh, like, vest straps on that are just flashing different colors. I Maybe it's like a backpack. Weird, man. That's pretty wild. Uh, but, you know, that's how we got to know our, all our neighbors and stuff. And it's just it's just very pleasant to sit out here because, you know, it's a, it's a porch. It's covered. It's raining, whatever. You can still sit out here. It's absolutely fantastic. And we were not even thinking about needing a porch. Now, my, my last place we had a porch wasn't really the same thing. It was more like a balcony kind of thing. This is an actual porch. And, again, this house was built in 1920. And I think most people had the porches, and they just, again, they got rid of them. They don't really build them on houses anymore as much. Uh, I, I, I have found it like an essential, an essential thing. I just love it. I'm sitting out, you know, I love sitting out here, recording out here. Um, really amazing. And it just made for a great space for, for the garage sale. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of effort. You know, and it was both days. You know, you think it's supposed to be eight to five both days. So uh, we, 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 it was so wild because we, I think, um, yeah, I think the night before we set up the tables out, outside and just left them out there. It's fine. You know, I have some tables out there. The next morning, like, we were, like, up at, like, I don't know, it was, like, 745, and we were just, like, somehow we got it all going by, like, 815, 830. We were all set up. It was amazing. It's amazing how those things happen. You know, something that seems like so, like, it's so hard to, or impossible to get it done so quickly. It just sort of happens. That's the thing that happens in life. Some things just, just happen, you know. But, of course, I mean, I've been kind of – it's been uh, a lot of stuff going on because last weekend, of course, as you heard on the famous 10-plus-hour episode, Chattanooga trip, my wife and I went to uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, also Georgia and Alabama. Fantastic trip, as you heard, as you were, you were there with us the whole time on the Overnightscape two episodes ago. Um, so that was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and it was just right incredible, but obviously very intense and draining. And then, uh, so then you know, Tuesday I was working from home, but then Wednesday and Thursday, as you heard on last episode, I uh, I went into New York City for training uh, high up in this office tower uh, in Manhattan, uh, both days, Wednesday and Thursday, and it was like again like a pretty intense uh, activity, and then. Friday was kind of a work from home. And then Saturday and Sunday was a garage sale. Then today is Monday. So listen, it happens. You know, you go weeks and weeks doing nothing, really. And then there's just a, a flurry of activity, as they say. 
And uh, so I've been really, like, really feeling the the effects of that. I really, you know, it takes a lot out of you. But I'm I'm hap- I've been very happy to have such an active time. But uh, it, but it ended last night. <laughs> Great weirdness. Uh, so it's <coughs> after uh, the garage sale. Then we actually were hanging out on the porch here with our with one of our neighbors and hanging out and talking to her, talking about like AI and stuff. It's a real hot button topic. This artificial intelligence or AGI. You know, I know I always talk about how we should uh, appreciate every day before AGI happens, you know, the the, the AI that's going to change everything. Because up till now, you know, AI and VR are these two kind of buzzwords that we've been living with for God knows how long, at least since the 80s, right? And, and you hear about VR, virtual reality, or AI, artificial intelligence. One is virtual, one is artificial. Um, and how it's going to change things. And it seems like it just never quite gets there, right? The VR and AI have have been implemented in various ways over the years, but it just doesn't. It just doesn't really quite. It's, it it's one of those things where it, I'm sure both the technologies will reach a point where they are going to reach critical mass and uh, really change things. But VR, you know, they're two very different things. But VR has been uh, very slow going, and uh, you know, even now with big companies like. Facebook became meta and they're going to create a metaverse. I don't even know what do they have? A thing called what is their thing called? Horizon Worlds or something? I I don't know. I don't really well, I do have the original Oculus DK and I have a DK2 sealed in the box it was shipped to me in cuz my VR efforts c- kind of crashed and burned in in uh, 2014. But anyway, um you know, I was even looking into it you know, because I, I, I'll talk about later. I was really thinking a lot about um, the metaverse and, uh, you know, radio and the metaverse and stuff. But we'll get to that. But I was actually looking into it, and there is a new um, open source um, metaverse system called um, Vircadia. V-I-R-C-A-D-A-I-C-A-D-I-A. Sorry. Vircadia. Like a virtual Arcadia. And uh, apparently it was built uh, from the ashes of uh, Philip Rosedale's – do I hear someone talking? What's going on? Philip – what is going on? Uh, what? I, I don't see anything. I hear stuff. Weird. Anyway, it was built on the ashes of – was it guys Philip Rosedale? That's the guy's name? His high fidelity. In fact – um, he, he's one of the guys that started Second Life, which was the first real big um, this kind of metaverse thing. And, of course, I joined early on. I joined in 2004. And early in, in the early days, I did burn down Neverland by mistake, and I got banned for two weeks. And then they, I, I was about to buy land and get more invested in it and that, because they banned me. And uh, without any – like I wrote them a long letter. They never wrote back, and I – kind of left a bad taste in my mouth listen go back and listen to this story I was it was innocent I, I just had these flames from this party and I started putting them on the ground not realizing each flame added to the stress on the server and I crashed the server without knowing it and it was Neverland anyway like Peter Pan was there and shit the the, the uh, alligator what was the alligator's name TikTok uh, was it Crocodile Never smile at a crocodile. Was that from that? Who knows? Anyway, um, so he left Second Life and started a thing called High Fidelity. 
I remember they were kind of demoing it when I was out there in Silicon Valley in 2014, the height of my involvement in VR. And uh, it didn't really look very good. And apparently it didn't work out very well at all. And it just crashed and burned. But it was open source. So another group took the remnants of that project and created Vercadia. Uh, my little research I've tried to do on it, I can find almost nothing about it on the Internet. Not even hardly any videos of it or anything. So I don't know what, what's going on with that. And then, of course, the, uh, Second Life was open source in a way and became uh, Open Simulator, which is apparently the the top um, open source metaverse right now. But it itself is, is very a very small backwater community of the Internet. The hell is this, a moth? <laughs> what's going on out here? Uh, let me have some mezcal. Mm, this is good stuff. This is that uh, melange or whatever, not melange, whatever whatever they call it. It's like a mix of different uh, mezcals. It's really, really good. I'm finishing it up. But anyway, yeah, so it's kind of, you know, it just sort of feels like I, I can envision what it would be like, but it just um, never seems to come. The VR, even still, right? A metaverse should be something that's easy, universal, just like the internet, like going on a Facebook or something, going on the metaverse, right? Um, and I'm completely baffled as to why there isn't some, one of the big companies haven't come out with something. And I know Facebook has, has that whatever, Horizon Worlds. I don't even know. I have nothing. I have no idea what that's all about at all. Because for me, a metaverse is something that has to be accessible on any device, not just a, a VR headset, which is a very off-putting thing. It's not something that I used to do it, and I just I got tired of it. I don't like putting that headset on. Um, Second Life was never like that. It was always just on a screen, on a computer screen. Why can't the meta, like the uh, Facebook thing, be on a just regular computer? I don't know. Anyway, I feel like eventually it will get better, and I also think that. I think, as I mentioned last time, um, some of the newer quote-unquote metaverses are tied to this cryptocurrency, which for me, I don't know why. I never got into it. I never bought or sold any cryptocurrency. And I've, those NFTs, I have no, I have no interest in being getting involved with that in any way, shape, or form. And I don't know why. It's just a gut feeling. It just feels uh, counterproductive in a way, right, to me. Um, it feels just like the old DRM, you know, like digital rights management. Um, it's, and I understand you're able to decentralize things using the, this blockchain or whatever, but it just doesn't feel right. It feels like we should be sharing things and not like uh, continuing to try and like keep your hands off on my stack, Jack, you know, this cupidity and this, this money centrism. It, it seems like the internet was a way of getting past that. Let me get off my soapbox now. Thank you. Um, but yeah, it, it just, that part of it annoys me. But I did try out Decentraland a couple times, which is a blockchain version. And it runs in a browser, but the, the graphics are piss poor, awful looking. And then the sandbox as well. One Remember the sandbox it was one of these VR platforms that uses cryptocurrency and it's and it said oh oh to uh, sign up it, it costs eight thousand dollars I'm like what the f who has eight thousand dollars 
oh, it's in it's in Ethereum cryptocurrency. It's still eight. It's still eight thousand dollars. I'm not gonna pay eight thousand dollars for a video game. Are you insane? What's going on? Ay ay ay. Anyway, so they look like crap. They're horrible looking. So I always thought that the way you need to do this, to me, the way it looks is right the major thing so using a, a technology kind of like the game streaming services you render the experience on a server somewhere and then you deliver a video stream to someone of what it looks like right and it definitely works I've, i have state stadia kind of crashed and burned in a way still going but i don't really play it anymore but right something like decentraland to me is the worst of the worst concept in vr I mean, VR and metaverse, I'm, I'm now mixing up these terms, but a three-dimensional world that you can navigate on a, on, on a device, that, that's what a metaverse is, basically. VR, virtual reality, that kind of re- talking about the headset, but not necessarily. Anyway, it, it will look amazing, right? It will be persistent. It will be always on. To me, the idea is that the metaverse... You have, uh, you know, a, something with the form factor of a smartphone in your smartphone in your pocket. You take it out, and you're in the metaverse. You see the three-dimensional world. You don't have to log in. You don't have to have a loading screen. It's just there, right? There'll be multiple video screens in your house. It's not like a TV set where you press the remote control on button, and it starts to ding, ding, do, do, do. You know that little sound, a little jingle when the TV goes on, and then it you have to load, and no. You walk by a TV set, and you'll inst- it'll instantly be on, and you'll see that world, the world, the 3D world that you're in. There'll be rooms that are every every surface is covered with video screens or video projectors, and again, the moment you walk in the room, it's on, it's on there, right? And again, anything else, tablets, VR goggles, it's not. There's no loading. You put it on, and you're in the world, right? That's the idea. It is a c- persistent world. That is immediately available, right? And I don't think this is like that advanced technology to say that these little quality of life things, like all the loading screens and things crashing, these are, I don't know if they're that hard to fix, but these are the things that need to be addressed when it comes to these kind of things. Rather than trying to get the, the next version of the, of the hardware is faster and faster, but everything works worse and worse. Anyway, I can imagine this persistent 3D world as a replacement for the internet and all the flat screens and scrolling and everything. It doesn't seem to be that far beyond our current technology, but it somehow it hasn't happened. AI is another thing that um, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about. Um, but what we currently have, like those amazing... Systems like I just did last episode show art on uh, Midjourney, one of the many uh, AI image generators, where you just write something out and it'll create an image of it, which is really an amazing technology. But these systems, right? And then you have self-driving cars, you have image creators. Each of these systems is custom-made, right, to do one thing and one thing only. Right, the mid the mid journey can't drive a car. It it makes images. It's just been custom made to, right, to do one thing. You see what I'm saying? So the idea is that we, these are early examples of very limited 
AI systems that do one thing. AGI is one term that describes artificial general intelligence, where it can learn to do anything, right? That is, uh, and, and that may not sound that impressive on the surface. Oh, well, so it's, it can learn to do anything. Oh, it can learn to, um, you know, cook your breakfast or, you know, bring in the newspaper in the morning. But the idea is that, right, a, a feedback loop, right, that once it can learn to do anything, it can begin to teach itself about, it can learn to incorporate and do everything, right? And that it becomes a geometric progression, you know, kind of like put, it's a, check, a, a chessboard, eight by eight, 64 squares, put one grain of rice on the first square, two grains of rice on the second square, and keep doubling it, right? And you'd think, oh, by the end, what, you might have, you know, a couple pounds of rice. But no, it's more rice that could fit in the entire universe, you know, essentially, something like that. This is this system, right, will go beyond. It won't need to be programmed. It will just learn to do everything, right? And at that point, so it can learn how to build a factory that can build robots, that can build more factories, that can build more robots, that can go and do anything, right? Like I was talking about, you know, a kind of time travel would be... Uh, take, you know, most of the United States and most of the world, it's just empty space. They're just fields and forests and stuff. There's no people living there. Imagine creating a recreation of a, of a city or a town in like 1985. Imagine everything you'd need to do, right? Build all the buildings, all period accurate. Stock every house, every kitchen, every, all the building materials would have to be period accurate, right? All of the, the the decorations in the houses, the TV, what's on the TV sets, everything else. It would seem to be this amazing task, impossible task, but it's something I think AI could do. Once this really takes hold, AGI could, you could say, hey, build a, sa- a city from 1985 out there in that field, and it could do it. You know, physically, I'm not talking about virtual reality, physically cre- build a city populate it with robots. I know this is sounding a bit like Westworld, but anyway. Even recreating the food of the time, right? Because the idea is that all world knowledge can be plugged into this system, every bit of information, and it could build factories to uh, create and, and actually grow grains to create the foods to make like Twinkies that would be like period accurate Twinkies, you know? But that's the idea is that it it will completely reshape the world because it will now have this ability, right, to go and build things in the real world, build physically build things without really human the only the only human interaction that will be needed is sort of a guidance, you know, well, what do you want me to build? And then, you know, it I'm sure it could show you a virtual representation of what it's gonna build first. And I know this this sounds impossible, these technologies, but the idea is that once you have an AGI, immediately it can start to improve itself. You see, that's what I'm trying to say. Once you get to point X, a point where which they call the singularity, I guess, it can start to it can start to improve itself. That it can learn better and better and better. Right. That's the moment where everything changes in theory. So we haven't gotten there yet. So in both VR and AI, 
we've been getting taste of it, but we haven't gotten there yet. But yes, that's what we're talking about. AI. And, uh, you know, people don't like it. And I, 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 I completely understand it really touches on the meaning of life and the meaning of human effort and things like that. Anyway, so after we were hanging out with our neighbor, we went inside and uh, my wife went upstairs and like she like fell asleep immediately. It was so, she was so drained from the whole weekend of the sales and then everything else we've been doing. And she has to go to work. I, she can't work from home. She works in healthcare. So um, I uh, I was going to watch uh, the Game of Thrones. You know the new show, um, House of the Dragon. You know that show. Um, I was a bit skeptical about it, and I think everyone was in the early going. But it's gotten much much better. It's actually quite a good show now. I would say it's it's sort of uh, risen to be very good. So. I'm happy about that, you know. Um, so I was going to watch it, and I was, uh, I just came down here, downstairs here to, uh, I don't know, to get some water or some food or something, and uh, food and water that you need while you're watching House of the Dragon. And then immediately the smoke alarm goes off. It's like beep, 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 warning, fire, fire, beep, beep, beep. I'm like, holy shit, what the hell's going on? Because it, it, it gave a false alarm once before for no reason. I could never figure out what it what happened. Um, other than we had the, these paint cans kind of stacked up nearby. And I was thinking like the fumes from the paint cans, slight fumes, even though the paint cans were all sealed, could amass and waft just at the wrong moment and, and hit into the, uh, the intake valve. Are there valves involved? No, of the, of the smoke detector. So I'm like, oh, my God. So I was real. And it really obviously riles you up, you know. Um, so I just I didn't know what to do so I just pushed the button and held it down and it says something like uh, quiet mode activated it's just like this weird woman's voice quiet mode or uh, um, pause mode or some kind of mode it went into and I'm like oh my god what the hell's going on here and uh, so I was like what am I going to do what am I going to do this is crazy I looked everywhere not a single sign of anything amiss nothing was amiss no fire or anything so I'm like, oh, God, all right, what am I going to do? Um, all right, I, I feel like I have to stay down here to see what's going on. So I uh, I opened the windows in the basement, which I didn't really open that often. And then I opened a window in the kitchen. And, cause, and then it started, to, this huge thunderstorm started outside. A- immediately, it was like lightning, really extreme like lightning and thunder i'm like what the hell smoke alarms beeping oh my god and then a few minutes later it starts beeping again i'm like holy crap well there's something going on here um so i press the button again and then i'm like listen i'm just gonna i'm gonna watch the house of the dragon here in the basement and i'll so i'll see if it you know if there's more of these alarms and try to figure out what's going on i open the windows oh my god everything so, and then I heard it say, like, quiet mode deactivated after about, like, five minutes. And I was, I, I was like, paranoid that it was going to go on again, but it never did. So, then I, I, tried to, I was trying to log in to my HBO Max, and there's some, I remember there being some incredibly convoluted stuff going on. Like, I think we, we don't, we, 
we don't have like a, a name and password. We have to log in through AT&T, right? Um, so I was just trying to figure it out. Like usually you put in your email address and say forgot password or you try to remember your password. So I just put in my email address and I said forgot password. And then it's like, oh, you can reset your password. I'm like, great. So I reset the password, and I, th- I think I was first trying on my computer upstairs, and and then I was trying on the the Samsung smart TV down in the basement, and what happened was, right, I logged in as myself, and I do have an account, but it's not, it's not it's an account that's not active, so I'm like, great, I'll you know go up to my the account button and log out and I'll try again cuz I remember I think it may have been my, my wife's phone number and stuff but I couldn't log out of any any version of HBO Max I couldn't even I could not log out right I I, I it, there's no logout function once you're in you're in it seems so I couldn't I couldn't get it loaded finally on my phone somehow I had like uh you know you know like sometimes like if you have a name and a password it just autofills so I went to AT&T.com and somehow logged in. And then I found this button for, oh, watch HBO Max now. And then that took me there. So it worked on my phone. But I couldn't log out on these other systems to get this good account back. So I just I, I just sent it from my Chromecast to the TV. But it was really weird. Like the colors were all washed out and it just didn't look right. But I just I watched it anyway. And it's a good episode. It's when it's like ten years later, so some of the actors are different actors now, you know. If you're watching House of the Dragon, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's like the best TV show ever, and you know, it's it's just like it's another one of these prequels. It's a prequel to the Game of Thrones uh, TV show. <sighs> but anyway, um, so I actually watched it, and there was no more of the that beeping, um, but it was. Uh, it was just such a. I had such a strange feeling. I, I guess it was just all of the, this activity for the past week, week and a half. Really, I can't even describe the weirdness I was feeling. Just this weird, very weird feeling. Uh, I'm trying to. I can't really describe it. I don't even know if I remember it. Just, yeah, and I was feeling it today too. And I know it does. It, it feels like the world is in a transition. You know. I know the, recently the whole British royalty thing, which I was into it for like the first day or two when Queen Elizabeth died and the news. But, man, I tuned out of that stuff really quickly. I didn't watch any more coverage of it. You know, and as I've said, I'm I'm really not – I don't support the idea of this, this constant idea of this continued royal families and stuff. But, hey, you know, as I've said, I'm in a country where we kind of – we did kind of get rid of that stuff theoretically – and it's the people in the other countries that still accept it. So, you know, it's, as a member of the human race, I'd like to say, I think, could you please get past the, Could you just end this whole royalty crap? <laughs> I think it's about time to get rid of it. But uh. <clears throat> anyway, the, the one thing I've been I've been thinking about a lot lately is <clears throat> kind of like places and times where everything seems to be just right for something to happen, right? Um, like a scene. Like, uh, creativity and um, c- 
culture and technology sort of and, and situations sort of intermingle. So there's times and places where things seem to be really properly set up to achieve something. There's a scene, right? Um, and lots of like of the media of the past, movies and music and comic books, they have a certain look and tone and feel that were of the time. And it, looking at it from a perspective in the future, it feels like, right, these scenes that exist temporarily and then, then they, they morph into something else, right, produce, it's like the people living in those times are able to produce this work, right? And I would say that I personally have been in some of these uh, scenes, like for me, the uh, my college radio station, the WMNJ at Madison Chatham at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Right? It was in the basement of this dorm, this dormitory called uh, Tolly Hall, and uh, the radio station was just smelled like stale beer, and it was just a big mess. But there was something so incredibly vibrant and vital about it. Right, that the fact that it was so, and you can hear the tapes of me there with Mad Mike doing my show, Anything But Monday, and there are still a few tapes to go. I would like to, I have to say about my Tapeland project, this has happened before. I'm on like a many month break from the Tapeland project. Tapeland is my um, many, many years project of uh, all of my audio and now videotapes that I've have not yet transferred to digital um, to try to get through everything that is worthy of release. I'm not going to just release everything, but the stuff that I think is is interesting and uh, worth preserving and bringing into the onsug here. I've, I'm frustrated because I've I've I have stopped again and I need to get back to it. But it is a very it is a huge commitment of that. It's so hard to describe, but that sort of life energy the chi the that energy that powers a creativity or manifestation it works in counterintuitive ways and it's and it, and so it's basically like right the more you create the more you know expensive it is or different types of creativity have different costs right which is why i think i've while i've aspired to uh, continue with uh, you know writing fiction or doing world building of various sorts. I've avoided it because I think that my ob- observations and my theory about it is that um, right what I'm doing right now, which is this monologue, it it has a different kind of cost than fiction, right? So I'm just like talking about stuff, right? I'm talking about stuff that's in my life. It's not fiction. It's actual reality, you know. It's just my my take on things, right? Somehow this is, um, in terms of this process, less expensive in terms of resources than creating fiction, right? Writing fiction or creating comics or whatever. So while I, I do aspire towards it and I still think about it, I realize, like, I probably should... Um, just let it go because this is this is a good enough creative outlet. I think it's a great creative outlet actually uh, to be able to give my perspective on things, talk about things on a show like this, and then preserve this show. Um, 
and it is sustainable. I can keep doing it, right? Um, I think that tape land where I'm, I'm listening to my old tapes and editing them, making decisions about them, it is a different kind of cost. Certainly not as much as full-scale fiction or world building, but it has a different kind of cost. So I, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm building up to getting back to it because I was trying to do an audio, then a video, then an audio, then a video, and I really would like to get back to that cadence because it's very important to me to get that stuff going. But yeah, those scenes, um, for lack of a better term, it does seem like, for example, you hear music like, uh, you know, I always talk about, you know, the, the early 80s new wave music, um, you know, the Duran Duran and the Men at Work, stuff like that. Um, the sound of it, it just sounds so perfect and fully formed. And these same guys, if they were born 10 years earlier, they would be doing a different kind of music. Or 10 years later, they'd be doing a different kind of music. They're just in that, they're sort of soaking in it. You know, I always sort of quote that commercial, you know, you're soaking in it. What was her name? Madge. Yeah, Nancy Walker. It was some sort of dishwashing liquid. Was it Prell or something? <laughs> no, it's not Prell. Prell is a shampoo. What was it you're soaking in it? Um, Prell. No. Palm olive. That's it. That's it. What do they use? Palm oil and olive oil and to make palm olive? And what were they soaking in it? She she was running a a nail salon, and I guess why were they, why were they putting their hands in this green liquid? I, I I guess you you needed to soak your nails, maybe to get the old color off so you can apply a new color. And now every time she's like, "You're soaking it," it's like, ah, 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 what, "What am I touching? What is my hand in?" <laughs> You're soaking in it. The hell. That's it. The commercials used to be so pervasive. I mean, the, I know the commercials are... I, I have to say the commercials now are unbearable to watch. But back then, there was a certain quality to the commercials. Like, it was almost like you were forced to watch them so much that you got... You almost became fond of them. Almost like a, st- a, a Stockholm Syndrome of commercials. Anyway. Um, and then... I've been taking another like deep dive into De La Soul, um, an early hip hop group from late '80s, early '90s. I've talked about them a lot on this show. I think that I remember when I was an intern at MTV News in '88 and '89. They, uh, I remember someone had the record, and it must have just come out. He's like, "Listen, Frank, you got to listen to Three Feet High and Rising' by De La Soul." I, I just had no interest at the time. I was like, okay, whatever. I tried listening to it. It was done. I don't know why, because it's quite a masterpiece. And then the follow-up album, 1991's "De La Soul Is Dead," is just honestly a top ten album of all time of any genre. It is an absolutely remarkable, puzzling, amazing, complex work. And I and I was listening to it the other day. Um, in fact, yeah, I was at I was when I was at when I was at work after the training. I just put it on, put on uh, Three Feet High and Rising, and then uh, De La Soul is dead. And it was just an amazing moment, just working and listening to De La Soul because there's all these skits, and especially De La Soul is dead. There's 
all these different characters and all this different stuff going on and these there's a radio station and there's there's like a donut store and there's like it, it, I'm not doing it justice talking about it um, and uh, you know last year you know this is one of the I think certainly the most significant albums, the first three albums, uh, along with the third one, Balloon Mind State, which I did listen to the other day as well. While not as essential as the first two, is still quite good. Um, they're still not on streaming. Uh, they're not on the streaming services. And last year they said they had finally jumped through the final hurdle, they had figured it all out, and they were going to get them on streaming, and they're still not on streaming. They are on YouTube, though, so you can listen to the whole albums on YouTube, which is how I listen to them. They also did a Kickstarter a couple years ago, De La Soul did, for a new album they created called The Anonymous Nobody. I don't know if it was related to that weird conspiracy theory about the nobody that percolating around the Internet, but uh, I really don't know. But I don't know if it was really that great of an album. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's still not out, but... You know, and I've been really looking into like the Jungle Brothers. There's a great, um, there's a great video. Of someone like doing our own thing, uh, or De La Soul, Jungle Brothers, uh, Tribe Called Quest. You know, Q-Tip, Moni Love is in there from 1990. Uh, just, it, just absolutely incredible. And again, it was the scene. They're from Long Island. It was like late 80s, early 90s. The technology, the culture, and everything else. It, it really could not, would not, and could not have happened any other time or place, right? It just, it seems like they're sort of feeding off of the energy of the of the scene or the times to create a timeless masterpiece. Yeah, so I'm really, I'm watching a documentary about that. I mean, there's there's so much going on. Um, and they were real young when they did it. They were like 19 when they did uh, Three Feet High and Rising and like 20 when they did, or 20 or 21 when they did... Uh, Around those ages, so probably not too much right, around around my age. The LSO would be around my age. Um, what's going on over there? Someone's crossing the street. <laughs> See, you're out here in the world, and people are out here doing stuff. <laughs> anyway, when you're on your porch, but yeah, there's um, and there is actually a 209 in uh, in LSO is dead. I'm, I probably talked about this before. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> can I find it? Uh, part of the one of the many themes of De La Soul is Dead is that they that they're being sort of a cost. Like people are constantly uh, trying to give them their demos and stuff, and trying to like uh, call them and get them to help them with the music industry. So I think it's that song. Hey, how you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name? And your number, and I'll get through to you. Hold on, let me see if I can find that. All right, I got to the lyric side here. Like the f- there's a f- there's an opening skit, and then they start with oodles of O's, and I think the O's are demos. I think that's what it means. Oodles and oodles of O's, you know. You get them from my sister. You get them from my bro. All I is is man, and once an embryo. Am I solid gold? I don't cast a glow. Yeah, that's how it starts off. Really good stuff. Yeah, so I, I think I can find it. So this this is uh, a song called uh, Ring, 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 Ha, Ha, Hey. 
Yes, this is Miss Renee King from Philadelphia. I want you to give me a call on area code 215-222-4209. And I'm calling in reference to the music business. Thank you. All right, I, I, I can find this now. It's a 209. I must have mentioned this before on this show. but It's hard to remember all this stuff. At least I have the audio of all my shows that I could hear. I don't know if I remember all my old shows, but... All right, what's her, what should I use here? YouTube app to try to find uh, Miss Renee King. And if they just gave her actual phone number. <laughs> okay, here we go. Search now. I know. If there was actual AI, it would just start playing the video. It would have heard what I was saying. You know what I mean? It's, and now I have to search and, and click on things. And Listen, we're pre-AGI, so what do you want? We're in the pre-AGI world. This is Masterclass. Masterclass. The ads that you have to watch before you can play your videos. But wait, can't you just watch videos like that like for free on YouTube? Why am I going to play for it? Pay for it. Yes. It's a really good song. Uh, this is an actual music video from back then. De La Soul is dead. Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number and I'll get back to you. copyrighted music even though they, they can't put it on streaming services it's still copyrighted um, anyway there's a 209 on there but yeah just thinking about that scene the world they were in and I think really they said um, Prince Paul who really is you know a major part of this album the weirdness of the album the incredible in- intricacy weirdness and just transcendency of the album Prince Paul definitely is part of it and he was in a band uh, a group called Stetsasonic from Brooklyn a few years earlier so it's, you know, um, I feel that, uh, you know, I was a hip-hop fan back then, later 80s, early 90s, but revisiting the hip-hop stuff from that time period yields endless hidden gems and things I hadn't heard or seen before. And I don't know, I feel like it just, as, you know, the 90s wore on and it became like gangster rap or whatever, I really tuned out to it and... Um, but what was there is an incredible uh, musical treasure. Um, so <laughs> this is all leading up to the idea that um, <clears throat> like uh, what was another scene I was this is just in prelude to what I'm talking about. Another scene I was involved with was the early podcasting scene, right? I was uh, in podcasting when it first started. I was one of the first podcasters. There and uh, I started October 2004, and I always have to bring it up. But yes, I was contacted by the Times of London, kind of like you know for for the, their weekend magazine, they did a whole full page article about the overnightscape way back then, because I was one of the first, I, you know the number that uh, comes to mind is 40, like one of the first 40 podcasters, and I was involved in that early scene with Podcast Alley and all of this. What was that guy's name? Um, 
Adam Curry and you know all of all of that stuff and the and the voting and the popularity and then I was involved in the I went to the podcast expos and I mean I was really in it I was in that scene and that really only lasted a, year, a couple of years before it kind of went bad you know it kind of crashed out uh and now of course podcasting is back and much different scene but there was a certain vitality especially to the early times right of of a scene like that and i know the word scene makes it sound like phony like scenesters or hipsters but i'm just using it for lack of a different term especially before everyone figures it out and becomes over commercialized there's a moment where things are very there's a different kind of vital energy that bleeds through right um a primal energy creative force bleeds through until it kind of is tamed by the commercial forces and then that stream of wild energy is cut off right another scene that I really really uh, enjoy looking at is uh, the early computer game scene and the early um, like Dungeons and Dragons gaming scene and you'll find in the magazines from that time a lot of smaller companies trying to sell their computer games or role-playing games with very small budgets and the the graphic design of the ads and stuff is very like naive and poorly produced but it has this vitality to it that is incredible right in fact um the early dungeons and dragons rule books used and had an, a black and white art style that was they used artists with varying levels of of talent and styles in black and white and that to me is an example of that a scene to the point that now everyone is trying to get back to that style like they're trying to reverse engineer it and get to it you know what I mean Um, whereas had they had the resources they they wouldn't have wanted that kind of weird black and white art they would have wanted super professional looking art right but it's all they could do at the time. Also feels seems to like resonate with um, audio production for music, where they were looking for ways to, in recording technologies, to even out the volume levels as you're recording something. And so the compressors and the limiters, the EQs and the amp- amplifiers distorted the sound that you're recording in a super unpredictable way that just wound up sounding so good that now all of the super high-end digital recreations are of those funky, messed-up analog electronics, right? Because it's what people are used to hearing. They're used to hearing drums where the volume gets louder and then less loud and then less louder and then less loud in a weird way that were the quirks of those original systems, right? Almost accidental, but just sounds good, produces a good experience. Um, and these, and this, of course, a lot of this is is in relation to a technology and relating to these scenes, especially with hip hop, with the the use of samp- sampling, early samplers, uh, drum bo- beat boxes, drum machines, right? Uh, the technology of the time that was used, and that around that same time in uh, 
what you know techno music or rave music kind of a similar uh intersection that and there's a certain intersection of culture and technology and so the the music of that time uh, for example like alternate for example as one band or the early the first album by the prodigy or there's so many uh, groups there's a certain sound to that rave techno music that is um, also of that scene this this time in Britain and then how about the Manchester scene from around the same time we're talking late 80s early 90s the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and those kind of groups I guess we could step back and uh, talk about the question of scenes so what happens is there's a progression of culture, society, technology, economics, and then these scenes sort of grow and morph within that progression. And in that, the creative force of humanity fits in and does its thing. And certain of these scenes are better and certain of the scenes not as good for producing incredible work, right? That's how we'd say it, but what if it's the other way around? What if these scenes are engineered to exist so that people can create stuff? That kind of relates to my theory I've talked about where people in the future are influencing the past using some sort of quantum technology like has been seen in a number of science fiction shows like uh, Travelers, for example. If you had the technology, wouldn't you want to see if the Beatles hadn't broken up what additional albums they would have created through the 70s? If you could reach back in time and change a few things and make them stay together, right? Like maybe Paul didn't die in 1966. You could create a timeline like that. So was uh, the original sequence of 20th century decades just incredibly boring but people in the future are now tampering with the past creating a much cooler 20th century it's just one way of looking at it but this is all leading up to um, something I've been thinking about a lot which is that uh, once the metaverse arrives right for real as I was talking about earlier I think that there could be a new revolution in radio, just as podcasting was kind of a revolution in radio or spoken audio, right? I think there'll be another revolution and another scene that will emerge, right? Metaverse radio. And uh, it could be one of those, at least in the early few years of it, it could be this wonderful, vital scene like the other scenes I've been talking about. And it's yet to come. You know, because like my uh, my feeling about podcasting as it exists today, as I said, I was I was I was quite involved in the world of podcasting, going to those podcast expos, and then uh, to the New York City podcast uh, meetup group for a number of years. Um, but then it just there was this point where podcasting kind of faded away, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. And then that um, was that podcast, the serial podcast, 
about, it was like a true crime podcast kind of revitalized everything. By the way, the guy that was profiled in that podcast was just released from jail. Turns out he actually was innocent. What's his name? Ad, Ad, Adnan something? But anyway, uh, after that time, so after that sort of, I'd say like the 2010, 2011 time period, which if you listen to the latest Overnight Escape Central, about 2010, I talk all about how there was, we had a scene going on here in 2010. Oh, my God. It was the early days of the Overnight Escape Underground or the Onsug. But that really was around the time that the podcasting was sort of at its low point after its initial rise. Um, so this new world of podcasting, I feel rather disconnected from, and I have I have sort of uh, flirted with a thought of a thought experiment. What if I was to uh, start a brand new podcast uh, and go to all the sites that how to start a podcast and with everything I know and everything I've experienced to try to insert myself back into the world of podcasting today and I just really can't do it. I've thought of it and it's just I can't stomach it. I can't stand it. I feel that what I've carved out here with this show, The Overnightscape, and our channel here, The Overnightscape Underground or The Onsug, is what I love and what I want it to be and my vision for what an audio channel could be and should be. And I really have no desire to try and... uh, merge back in with the mainstream podcast world of the day, which I feel its time is limited as well. But in theory, right, the metaverse, which is going to be a very different type of uh, digital experience, will, I think, bring forth a new type of radio, right? So it'll sort of metaverse radio will be a thing quite distinct from podcasting because I think it will be first and foremost will be broadcasting live in the metaverse right and we will have an actual radio station in the metaverse a virtual building that is our studios and other people would, will be doing this as well internet um, sorry virtual radio stations right where, where you will go in and you will have that um, the broadcast studios, right? And you will have those spaces. And it, listen, I, I don't think that we need to slavishly uh, recreate um, a room with a mixing board and a microphone and a transmitter, right? It's That might be the initial thought, but I think that um, creating a spaces in which to record, right? Uh, you have this... Uh, building or a space uh, but it could in t- inside of it it could contain all these different spaces where you will go perhaps with other people to record right and it doesn't need to be a room with a microphone because it's a whole new environment the virtual world the metaverse but i think also in terms of if it is broadcasting out to the metaverse and then people can call in we can go – you can be mobile and visit spaces, be re- recording live, broadcasting live inside the metaverse, visiting different places, right? I'm anticipating that this will be that kind of scene. And I don't know. It feels kind of wrong to anticipate a scene like this, but I certainly am. So I'm in a way looking forward to it 
And I was wondering, is there any way to kind of prepare for it? But I don't know that there is. Um, I know I was talking about the idea of like a, a distinctive building in the metaverse. Um, and when it comes to our channel here, the Onsug, it's a radio station inside a book. So I think our building will just be a big, a big copy of the book. I, I mean, I, the building will be the book because we're inside a book. It's right. It's the answer is in the title of the book itself, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, as I said, this has not emerged yet. It's not something that I can particularly control when this is going to emerge. But when it, I just want to be mindful of be very ready for it. Um, when it's when it arrives. I feel that our channel here, the Onsug, we can sort of do our thing in the metaverse. And I'm very ready to do it. It's just, it's like a waiting game at this point because I don't really feel like I can, uh, you know, yes, I could use one of those Unity or Unreal Engine or OS Grid or Open Simulator or Vercadia or something to create a little pocket universe in VR. Um, but I don't, at this point, I don't think it's worth the effort. I feel like once the metaverse em- is emerges, then that radio scene, that metaverse radio, or whatever it'll be called, it'll be a new th- It won't be podcasting. It'll be a new thing. Metaverse radio may be the name of it. Or some other name. I feel like uh, it could be one of those cool new scenes. <laughs> but... As I said, it feels almost wrong to anticipate a scene like that, but what do you want? Anyway, and a whole different topic, another TV show, Andor. I I touched on this uh, briefly on a recent episode. The uh, utter mismanagement of Star Wars by the Disney Corporation. And I feel like I have to watch all of the live-action Star Wars TV shows. I can skip the cartoons and the animation. Why? I don't know. It's just a personal rule. I I tried watching The Bad Batch, and I just got through about three minutes of that. I'm like, no, no, I'm not watching this. I'm not watching Star Wars cartoons or or 3D computer animations. The live-action stuff, though, I kind of have to watch. And it's been horrible, from the Obi-Wan Kenobi to the Boba Fett to the Mandalorian. Oh, my God horrible this is pulp fiction right star wars is based on the old movie serials the flash gordons things like that it's a formula it should be easy to create star wars shows but there seem to be other agendas and other issues and it's not just the woke stuff but that doesn't help but you know i would just love to see a tv show a star wars tv show that has the spirit of the original star wars Anyway, Andor, which sounds so much like Endor, the planet of the Ewoks, it's not Endor, it's Andor. It is a it is a prequel to a prequel. So it seems like the most ridiculous thing. They made a movie called Rogue One a few years back, which I those Disney Star Wars movies, I think I've seen all of them exactly once because they're just so horrible. I was thinking about revisiting like The Last Jedi, I thought was the worst of the worst. What a piece of garbage. Um, 
and the rise of Skywalker. Oh my god, horrible movies. Anyway, Andor was this character, Cassian Andor. So he was one of the spies that stole the plans for the Death Star that figured prominently in the first movie from 1977. And everyone in the movie died at the end. <coughs> right? Because they, they all got blown up or something. But they got the plans to Princess Leia on her blockade runner, the Tantive Four. So why would they make a TV show about Cassie and Andor? I don't know. He looks a little bit like Paul McCartney. That's what everyone's been saying. He's like a Paul McCartney kind of looking guy. Slightly. Um, it, it just seems like a prequel to a prequel. and Plus there's flashbacks in the show to his childhood. It's like a flashback inside a prequel inside a prequel. Uh, so the first couple episodes were very slow going. But I mean, as people pointed out, the visuals and the cinematography a bit better than the other TV shows. And it's just much more, it feels like a much more sort of serious, adult-oriented kind of Star Wars show, but it felt, the first two episodes just felt very aimless and pointless. But by the third episode, because they released a thir- uh, three episodes at once, um, it really started getting much better. And I know there's a huge, I know people want to hate this stuff because there's been this history of this but it really started feeling to me like um, like an 80s art film kind of feel or in a way some people are saying and I I actually detected a bit of a a Blade Runner vibe in it in terms of this the the vibe of it you know like 80s uh, uh, filmmaking and I saw other people mention that as well and also reminded me a bit of uh very obscure movie I've talked about it on the show before. Uh, Kin Kin Zadza, a Russian science fiction movie that's very good actually. Kin Zaz Kin Jaja. Um, but yeah, like I remember in the eighties and nineties going to art house theaters and seeing these weird like European science fiction movies, and it felt it feels kind of like that. I feel like it's somewhat way way different than the original Star Wars vibe but um, I'm kind of digging it though I'm kind of digging Andor now I feel like uh, like what I have in my phone here like an article on uh, let's because like on the on the Google phone you have this Google yeah you have like a Google stream of it's almost like Google News Here's from a site called Bounding Into Comics. Star Wars Andor, triple episode debut review. The epitome of terrible. And I'd, I'd have to say, no, it's not terrible. I, I, I can kind of see what they were trying to do. It is actually much better than the other Star Wars TV shows they've been putting out uh, so far. It's not perfect. It's not great. But again, it's um, it has that kind of cinematic that almost sort of expansive, weird um, cinematic feel of like an 80s like art film or something. So, but I wouldn't, you know, if you're not a Star Wars fan, don't subject yourself to any of the Star Wars crap. Please stay out of it. I almost envy these people I meet. Oh, you know, I've never seen a Star Wars movie. At this point, you're lucky, you know, for... 
the absolute thrill of the first two movies in 77 and 80 we've had to endure the the garbage that has been Star Wars since then <laughs> so if you're not into Star Wars I don't know what to tell you I, I, I can't help it I mean it was when I was nine years old I saw Star Wars when it first came out in, 19, in May of 1977 I can never I mean that's a formative experience of my life and I'm not even it's not cynical or weird I mean that was seeing Star Wars was life changing seminal moment in my life a life defining moment and you could say that's kind of sad you know there's some sort of Hollywood movie for change your life but you know I was nine and uh, this had everything I ever wanted in a movie that I never got and everything I ever wanted to see on TV or in a movie or in a comic book or anything a thousand times more of aliens, lasers, robots, spaceships than I had ever seen. You know, so I'll never be able to get away from Star Wars, though I might want to. <laughs> ah, good morning. It's the next day now. Sitting here in the same place on my porch. Some coffee and a cigar. Beautiful morning. Beautiful sunny day. Very nice. Of course, down in Tampa, Florida, they're preparing for Hurricane Ian. Looks like it's going to be a big one. I'm not sure when it's going to hit. Last night I was looking at the weather charts. It was in uh, Cuba. But yeah, looks like it's going to be a big mess. Anyway, you know, I'm talking about these scenes, uh, times in history where things seem to be aligned in a certain way to produce a certain type of experience. And my cats had that this morning. It's very weird. My cats usually are hanging out upstairs in the morning as I'm waking up because they're waiting for me to come down and give them their breakfast. This morning, I didn't see hide nor hair of them. And uh, when I went down, they were down there, but they were like super distracted. They were having this epic battle <laughs> in the living room, uh, you know, uh, Mojo in Vegas, and chasing each other around and going nuts. And I, I think th they had a particular scene because we had these shelves uh, that we brought from upstairs uh, for the garage sale, but we haven't brought them back yet. We just figured we could just stick them in our living room for, for a few days. I think we did that last year as well. And so now it's this wonderful new playground for the cats, and they're just kind of going crazy there. So they had their own scene going on, you know? It's wild. In other news, uh, Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, is now... Um, the closest it's been to Earth in, what was what did they say, like 50-something years? Yeah, in 59 years. Uh, Jupiter is, it will just, tonight it will be uh, 367 million miles away from the Earth, the closest it's been since 1963. Uh, and Jupiter can be up to 600 million miles away, you know, depending on the orbit of the Earth and, and Jupiter. But what really interested me, because I, I don't really have a telescope, I don't have a telescope. I don't, I shouldn't say I don't really have a telescope. I don't have a telescope. Though I do have a binoculars and a monoculars somewhere. I don't know where they would be at the moment. I've probably I've lost track of them. But uh, if I could find them, they're saying that if you're in an area where you can see Jupiter, with a pair of binoculars, you could see, like, the stripes on the planet and the red dot, right? I don't think I've ever seen that with the naked eye. 
Because, of course, you know, with all the conspiracy theories about NASA and outer space and everything else, it'd be good to see it for yourself, as I know many people do. It's, uh, there's, there's way too much anecdotal evidence that people are looking through telescopes and seeing Jupiter with the stripes and the, the red dot and some of the moons of Jupiter. They see it themselves. So it's not just a computer graphic made up by, um, by NASA. There's, you know, it's, everyone can see it with their own eyes. Um, as to the nature of the planet in terms of what it really is, I mean, I, w- I would, of course, like to think, and I, and I know I say this all the time, you know, I do have my doubts about the nature of the world we're living in, not the least of which is that it's all some sort of video game or computer simulation that we're living in, in which case the planets that you see in the sky are just part of the game. They're, they're as unreal as anything else, right? And, you know, perhaps more g- getting at a different level of theories that we're not living in a video game. Somehow it's real. <laughs> like the world we're living in is real, not a computer simulation. But, of course, the idea is that there's a dome over us called the firmament and that the planets that we see and anything that we see in the sky is just sort of um, something that's projected on this the screen of this dome, almost like a planetarium. Ironic, since a planetarium is supposed to represent the sky. And in that case, you know, Jupiter, you know, I have to say, in general, does look kind of fake in terms of all those little swirly clouds and the big red dot. You know, it looks kind of fake, but obviously it's there. You know, I don't want to. If I had to guess, I would say that that this the world we're living in is not the way we think it is. But it could be. I, I totally admit that. And I. But I love I, I I wouldn't want to be disillusioned and have this scene we're living in be disenchanted. Um, I like the idea that we think that we're on this planet orbiting the sun and then there's other planets like Jupiter and stuff. I I feel like it's a soothing, wonderful vision and idea, and it's uh, you know it's not something it's something that I do question, but it's not something that I think is wrong. I mean and Right. I mean, if if we're living under a set of um, illusions or otherwise known as lies, there may be a good reason for it. Right. And maybe the truth is is, is really not very fun. The actual truth of where we're living and who we are and what we are. So this idea of outer space and spaceships and Jupiter and Saturn and all these planets and all this fun stuff, spaceships, the space shuttle and the Apollo mission and the the new moon mission, whatever happened with that? That got canceled, man, or, or delayed. The Artemis mission. Something was wrong with the rocket. The rocket ship was, like, messed up. Really? After all these years and after... Oh, my God. The rocket isn't working. Great. Anyway. Um, so I, I might try it. I might try... I, I don't know. I don't know if I have a good spot to see it, but... They say you have to see it near the horizon. I don't know if I... I, I live in a kind of a hilly area, but... We'll see. I live on a hill, so we'll see. Maybe I'll try to see. I'd like to see Jupiter with the naked eye, or or through binoculars at least. But I have a monocular somewhere too. That's like a that's like sort of a mini telescope. It's like half a binoculars. I mean, binoculars and telescopes are very similar. It's just what is the power of magnification, right? I don't know how good it would be. Then, of course, uh, in, in, on Saturn, I don't know if you can see it from Earth, but they've sent probes out there 
and you see there's a big hexagon on the top of the planet, which seems a bit unnatural too, but anyway. So yes, I have my doubts, but I don't really feel like, you know, it's worth, well, it's, I want to know what the truth is, but I'm also open to understanding the, the reasoning behind the lies, you know, if they are lies. Anyway, now we have a few updates. I, I, I did make a bit of a uh, an error earlier, as I'm sure many of you television commercial aficionados were yelling out at me. Of course, it was not Nancy Walker, who starred in the Palmolive commercials. She was the bounty paper towel uh, spokes, spokesman, spokeswoman, spokesperson, spokeswoman. I know that I remember that they were trying to uh, to change the terms to be more gender gender neutral, like a chairman would become a chair one. And a spokesman become a, a spokeswoman. That does sound like a good solution, but it doesn't really. I don't think it really has uh, caught on. But she's the spokeswoman for uh, bounty paper towels. Bounty, the quicker picker upper. She lived. She 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 worked. She worked in a diner, and at, where these people that came to the diner were all just complete klutzes. They're constantly spilling everything. You give them a cup of coffee, like whoa whoa, and they just knock over the cup of coffee. She's like, no, don't worry, we have bounty paper towels, the quicker picker upper. Right. Can you imagine working in a place like that? Every customer, you give them like a glass of milk. Oh, whoa! I'm oh, sorry, I knocked it over, Nancy. <laughs> Don't worry, we have paper towels. <laughs> and they just have this huge supply of paper towels in the back because their customers are all these idiot klutzes that knock everything over every five seconds. Can I have some uh, 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 Hawaiian punch? Sure. Let me just like let me st- stop you right there. I'm 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 Nancy. I'm your waitress here at the diner, right? I'm going to give you a glass of Hawaiian punch. What your goal is to drink it, right? You're thirsty, you want it? Yes. Yes, I am the customer. Okay. Can you be extremely careful? Don't knock it over. People here are very accident prone. Can you just can we just I'll give you this and just take a step back, take a deep breath, right? Don't flail your arms around. Don't get distracted. Don't uh don't fumble around. I'm going to put the glass down right now and you're going to take a drink. Okay. Stop. Now, don't knock it over. You're an adult human being. Okay, reach out, touch the glass, lift it up. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Listen, there's something wrong here. Wait a minute. Am I living? Is this the real world or am I living in a commercial? <laughs> yes. At some point, she'll realize she's living in a, uh, in a commercial and that all the people at our, at our restaurant are idiots. Okay. Anyway, uh, yes, it is actually Jan Miner. Thank you, Mrs. Miner. <laughs> oh, that's Mr. Miner from a fish song known as uh, Run Like an Antelope. Yes. Jan Miner died, uh, born 1917, died 2004 at age 86. You're soaking in it. I was watching some of those commercials. I, I, she might, well, I think she did this. How long did she do this for? Um, from 1966 to 1992, she was doing, you're soaking in it. <laughs> Great. Jan Miner. Oh, there's a picture of her from 1953 in Hilltop House. So she was, I guess she had an acting career until she got stuck in that, that uh, commercial nail salon from hell where everyone's soaking in palm olive the hell i mean i should just at some point i should just get some palm olive and just stick my hand in it just to see what it's like i mean right i mean 
I mean, I don't. I've never done that. I don't think I've ever used palm olive. I don't know. Is it palm olive or palm olive? Like it's a palm tree, but you, they say palm olive. Like, don't they pronounce the L palm olive? The first L, pa- or palm olive? You're soaking in it, palm palm olive. Almost sounds like palmol or palmal. That um, remember that cigarette called palmol or palmal? P a l l m a l l. But I don't think it has anything to do with the shopping mall because I remember I went to the Pall Mall. It, it's like in, in when I was in London for just a few hours a couple years ago. Met up with Doc Sleeves. We went to the Pall Mall, which is it's just like a street, the Pall Mall or Pall Mall or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't know. But Pall Mall Iv, like that almost on Pall Mall of Pall Mall Iv. You know, could there be like uh, detergent cigarettes? <laughs> yes, I like that idea. Detergent cigarettes. You can smoke them or wash your dishes with them. Let me write that down. That's a good idea. Detergent cigarettes. I guess it could be detergent flavored cigarettes, but that's not really... That that doesn't sound very enticing. Uh, I don't know. Detergent cigarettes. Something about that... I like that detergent cigarettes. Both words have kind of a lot of texture, a lot of character. Yeah. And that mezcal I had last night is the mezcal vago. Ensemble and Barro by Tio Ray. So that's the name of that one. Yes. Anyway, um, I was I was looking, trying to think about the show art I was going to make today, and I, was, I thought about um, you know those early days of Second Life and the podcast expos, and I remember there was a certain incident where I went to. At, well, from one of the podcasting things, it may not, it may have been the podcast expo or one of the pod camps in New York City. I don't think they have that kind of stuff anymore. But these get-togethers of podcasters, and well, now everyone has a podcast. So, like, if they had a, if they had a podcast event, like everyone would go. There'd be like a million people there. But back then, there were less people. It was a smaller, uh, a smaller pond. You could be a big, bigger fish in a smaller pond, or a smaller fish in a smaller pond. In my case, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> There was a uh, an adjunct, uh, someone created a temporary space in Second Life for the podcasters as a part of one of these, I think it may have been one of the pod camps. And I remember I, I was there, and I think Rule from the Netherlands was there as well, virtually from the Netherlands. And um, we were we were playing around at this pod camp. I think it was just like a little festival to set up. But I like taking objects and making them giant. So I had this uh, martini glass, and I made it giant, and I was like... We were hanging out on top of my giant martini glass. I ho- I'm always causing a ruckus in Second Life in some way. I remember there were some pictures of that, so I'm like, hey, I, I should try to find those. But the few minutes I tried, I'm like, I came up empty. I know I could find I know it's somewhere, but I can't find it at the moment. Um, but then I'm like, wait a minute. I still I still have Second Life, and I, I remember going in a, couple, a year or two ago maybe. My avatar, Al Toco Steel, is still in there. I remember I talked about Al Toco Steel. When you sign up for Second Life... And I signed up, I believe it was December 2004, which is like uh, almost 18 years ago now. <laughs> Can you imagine 18 years ago I was in cyberspace, you know? Um, you have to choose a last name from a list. And uh, so I chose Steel, S-T-E-E-L-E, because I had been a fan of Remington Steel, the TV show, which I talked about a couple episodes ago. And I'm still watching it. I'm still watching Remington Steel. really enjoy the show. I really do like the show Remington Steel. Um... The two main characters, Pierce Brosnan and uh, Stephanie Zimbalist, are the actors. 
just have a great chemistry and a great relationship. And uh, it's a show I loved back then. And I still love it. It's, it's really kind of unique because it's it's kind of silly uh, in a way. Um, and it's funny because in this episode, I think it was episode six. I'm really still early on. Uh, Remington Steele is talking about, you know, Pierce Brosnan. He's talking about the movie The Shining, <laughs> describing Jack typing, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Because you, you kind of think, it, this was early 80s, so they at the, the episode 2 or 3 they had all these arcade video games and talking about The Shining, so there's a lot of pop cult- culture references in there. Of course, um, the... Uh, I mean, the storyline of Remington Steele is that Laura Holt, played by Stephanie Zimbalist, was a private investigator who wasn't getting any work because she was a woman. So she made up this fake person named Remington Steele that was her boss but was never around, didn't actually exist. But then Pierce Brosnan's character, who is as yet unnamed in the show, comes in and sort of adopts the identity, takes on the identity of Remington Steele. Though he's kind of an idiot. He's, he's, he's kind of like a silly kind of idiot kind of guy at some level. Um... I think that really is kind of like he's kind of silly in some ways, but not goofy silly, but a bit kind of uh, inept and silly. So he's kind of the funny one, and she's sort of the straight man in the relationship. And there's also a sexual tension between them, which is the engine on which the show runs, you know. Um, A lot of shows have that, where there's a lot of sexual tension between the two lead characters. And as long as they don't do it, it remains very interesting. And eventually they might do it, I don't know, but... You know, kind of like Mulder and Scully kind of deal. You know, I think they did eventually do it, didn't they? Mulder and Scully. I don't know. Anyway, so I, I chose the name, um, last name Steele, and um, uh, then the first name I just made up, Altoco, which is my uh, was the central area of my little world of racetracks, virtual world that I created a number of years before that. Whatever happened to the, to the little world of racetracks? I don't know. Anyway, um, so. I uh, I booted up Second Life this morning and my God it worked I couldn't believe it I was I was like is this this is almost like this is like a gamble like is this really going to work I just searched my hard drive for like Second Life and it worked they had to update it and uh, there he is Alatoko Steel he's uh, sort of meant to look a little bit like me he has um, sort of spiky long hair uh, you know facial hair beard and mustache wearing glasses and smoking a cigar wearing a, a black t-shirt with a red anarchy symbol on it, a kind of a leather jacket, and these snakeskin pants with a some kind of a, a white and black belt. You can see him there in the show art with his cigar that he smokes. He actually, the cigar comes with an animation, so he smokes the cigar. And I was in a, um, a virtual amusement park called uh, Indiecade Oasis, and... I guess that's where I was the last time I logged in, which would have been a couple years ago. You know, I, I haven't been in there for a while. And uh, so I'm like, hey, I'm standing there right kind of in front of a Ferris wheel and a merry-go-round and a, and a pirate ship. I'm like, let me just take a picture of myself. And, you know, it's a screenshot. And uh, it, it, the camera was a bit wonky, but I eventually got the picture you saw there. And uh, I'm like, wow, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I wanted. And the symbol and the sign above his head says "Podcaster Al Toko Steel," because you could get these identifiers. And at one point, I made mine "Podcaster." Uh, you know, so I was a podcaster because it, it was interesting because there was a, a lot of podcasters in those early days of podcasting, the 05 and 06 time period, 
um, also had a lot of presence in uh, Second Life, right? And they were um, <clears throat> like uh, there was this podcast island. Again, this Adam Curry and what was the name of his pod show? I think it was the name of his website. He had Podcaster's Castle, but it was locked. You couldn't get in unless you were part of the inner circle. There was a bit of that going on back then. I actually experienced it firsthand at the second podcast expo in uh, 2006 where it was extremely vague, but like you had to sign up to do a show on Podshow. And this guy, uh, Jay, that I knew, I think that was his name. I, th- I see him on Facebook occasionally. Whatever happened to him? We were out there together, and so I had been on his show. He had, did a show called Techie 2, and he signed with Podshow. And they, they later changed their name to, like, Podio or something, Podio Show, and then it just all went away. But anyway, um, again, just like in Second Life, in real life, they had this pod show suite at some mysterious hotel somewhere. And I'm like, well, hey, you know, like, I'm on a show that's on pod show, so can I come over? And Jay was like, or Jim or Jay, whatever his name was, he's like, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll see what I can do. I'm like, what do you mean? You see, can I just come over? I'm on, I'm on a show that's on this pod show. I'm a star of a show on the network. I'm a co-star of a show on the network. I wonder what ever happened. I don't know if any of those episodes still exist. I, I didn't archive them because they weren't my show. I must have some of them in the archive. Maybe someday I'll find them. But Then there was this woman, Brenda, that also was on the show at some point. And I, and I still see her on Facebook. I think she has a couple kids now. So, yeah, I never was able to go to the secret hotel. So I quit the show after that. I'm like, you know, I kind of didn't want to do it anymore anyway. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if I, if, if I can't even get the perk of going to the secret hotel, just like I've already been locked out of the secret castle, even though I found a way in. There was a door where if you, where if you approached it right at the right angle, you were like clipping and you could go through or you could use the teleport function to get in. And it was just empty. I think the castle was just empty. But... um that very clicky kind of inner circle kind of thing was really turned me off. Anyway, I don't want to sound bitter. I guess I was bitter at the time. I'm very bitter. But anyway, it turned out to be a good uh, good show art. I used the font Steiner special from Canada type, I think. Yeah, that's good. Good font. Good font. Love it. Whoa, did I find it? Is this Techie 2? Wait, 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 wait. Let me start it again. Hey guys, this is Carmen Tyler, and here's this week's Techie 2 today. Is this the one I'm on? Or? Coming up on Techie 2, Carmen Tyler shows us a free video conversion and how to capture your computer screen for free. And I'm Jed Donnelly. I'm going to show you the latest iPhone coming out soon in June. And our New York City reporter, Frank Edward Nora in Times Square. Consumer bloomer? Wow, I didn't wow, this actually exists. All coming your way next on Techie 2. Wow, I didn't know this was out there. 14 years ago, it's on YouTube. The new Techie 2 show one. If you haven't gotten the latest. Uh, anyway, let's not even worry about that. Yeah, that's wild. That uh it's still out there in some way. My new the, what was I the New York reporter, the New York correspondent, Frank Edward Nora? Yes. Whatever happened to this guy, Jay Donnelly, that was his name. But it wasn't, it was J-A, I think his, his first name started with a J, his middle name was an A, Jade, J-A, but he calls himself Jay Donnelly. Listen, everyone's trying to do their thing in podcasting, and uh, 
you know, what do you want? What do you want? He couldn't get me in. Couldn't get me into the, the secret hotel. <laughs> so, it's a little bit later now. Uh, last episode, I, uh, I don't think I talked about the font I used. I may have mentioned it. Uh, last episode was the Overnightscape 1949, Further Patterns of History. And I, uh, I used the font called uh, Cassandra, or may- it's French, so maybe pronounced Cassandre, but I can't say that conversationally. I'll say Cassandra. Um, this is really a super interesting font because this guy Cassandra, um, A.M. Cassandra, or Alphonse Cassandra, um, he created a very famous font called uh, Peignot, P-E-I-G-N-O-T, and that's the font that's known as the Mary Tyler Moore font. And I, I know whenever I see it out in the wild, I think I saw it walking around um, White Plains uh, a few months back. Uh, really amazing font. He also designed the Yves, Yves Saint Laurent font, uh, logo. But his final font was called La Cassandra, and um, really amazing font. And I remember first hearing about it, there was a... Um, a magazine I got back in the 90s. It was a design magazine. Remember, it was large format. They had an article about him, and they showed a sample of it, and I think I actually did some work on trying to digitize it myself. may have used it in some places. Really fascinated by this font. I didn't find out until recently um, that he actually uh, took his own life around the time this font was made, and uh, these font companies rejected the font. They didn't want it. And that may have been, that may have played into his uh, taking his own life. Um, anyway, some uh, company called uh, Presence Typo and a designer named Terry Puffalo, <laughs> again, this is all French, uh, c- actually created a version of it. And this was a number of years ago that this was created. And um, they uh, produced a version that was the exact close as possible to the sketches and then they um, produced a version which they felt was cleaned up and modernized and there was a regular and a a bold version really beautiful looking fonts available on fonts.com I think part of the reason I was looking into this is I was looking at my old work on uh, night station logos and I know I would sort of thought of this font for that anyway um, I used that font uh, on the show art the original Cassandra font um, but in, in researching this, um, I found a similar story. Roger Excafon, designer of a number of super important fonts. In, in, the biggest font he ever created was uh, Antique Olive, which um, is a font you would recognize it if you saw it. It's, it's a sans serif, but very distinctive. And I don't, I don't know that I'm a big fan of Antique Olive. I just don't really, it doesn't give me a good feeling when I see it. But it's a very especially that Nord, <laughs> that's a really heavy version. Um, it just sort of doesn't rub me, the, it rubs me the wrong way typographically. But he also produced uh, fonts uh, such as Banco, Mistral, Chalk, and Calypso. Right? These are all kind of display fonts that uh, whenever I see them out and about, I'm always, I always notice them. Uh, you know, Mistral is like a script. Banco is kind of an angular font. Chalk is a kind of a heavier uh, um, script-type font. Calypso has that sort of half-tone pattern folded around letters. 
uh, chalk, I, whenever I see it, I, I do see it around quite a bit, usually on restaurant logos and Mistral you see around anyway. So this guy is really, really um, his work is very, you know, important in, in the world of fonts. Um, <clears throat> apparently he's much more famous and much bigger in France than here, and Cassandra also was in France, but he was apparently born in Ukraine to you French parents. Anyway, so Excafon, um towards the end of, end of, I guess he died in 83, so in the 70s he was commissioned, I think by Berthold, to produce a font, and he came up with this radical new idea, a revolutionary idea, a font that looked extremely weird called Excafon Book. And I had never heard of this, but um, there's this guy, Bruno Bernard, back in 2017, gave this talk at uh, A-Type I, a, a font conference, about the font. And um, it's just a wild, crazy-looking font, but it was meant to be a reinvention of typography, meant to aid in the legibility and the reading of the font, right? As so many of the fonts in the past had sort of, sort of slavishly... Um, followed the design aspects of previous fonts perhaps at the with, without going back to the drawing board and what is a font for it's you know in terms of actual body copy it's actually for reading right and so he created this font which I think looks absolutely amazing Excafon book uh, it was rejected in a similar vein it was rejected by Berthold I think it's very strange that they rejected it it does look weird but understanding the revolutionary quality of it, they should have gone forward with it. I don't know what happened. So back in 2017, this guy Bruno Bernard gave this talk, and in 2018 made a post on his site. He didn't know if he should publish it because the, the sketches that survive, because he made a deal with the family, he has all the sketches, have a, a number of inconsistencies in them. So his question was, should he uh, publish it with inconsistencies, perhaps hurting the reputation of Excafon, or should he go and sort of uh, redesign it a little bit to make it consistent, in which case he's adding his own flair to it. Now, I don't understand why he didn't just do what Terry Pufalu did and do both versions, do the original completely and then make his own rendition. That seems to be the best way of going about it because there's, right, do both. Um, and there's, as far as I can tell, I've been tried researching it. And Bruno Bernard has been like nothing since 2018, and it's already 2022 now. So, is that only four years? I guess that's four four years. Uh, I would love to see this font. And in terms of actually even having images of the fonts, there is an image of the entire font in the video. But I don't know if there's any um, actual like. I guess I could download the video or take screenshots or something to try to do something with it. Um, I'm trying to see. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I, I, I don't know. I, it, it must be in here somewhere on this, this site. Yeah, I, I need to do some research. Anyway, uh, I would love for this font to come out. I, I, I think uh, there, there was a font that I played a hand in, that font Roberta. Remember, I, uh, I sent a guy that was reviving this font some screenshots of different versions of Roberta, which he wound up producing with the the blessing of the uh, the, the creator of the font, and I use that as you know like the, the the logo for the Ansug. Um, 
Let me see if I can find something here. Excophone book. Uh huh. Let's see. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe that video is really the only source of of. Uh, hmm. That is so weird. Yeah, it, it, it may be, uh, that may be the only, well, actually, let me, let me try a different search here. Yeah, I can search for the site and then site colon and then just search for images and that might try to get all the images that are on the site. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's see. Cool. It's a lot of good images here. Yeah, so maybe that video is the only, yeah, maybe that video is the only source of images of the font. I mean, I could try, to, I could, I could at least do show art with it or something. But I thought it was interesting, this, this sort of lost font that you're really depending on these interested parties after this guy died to kind of revive it. I, I'd, I'd love to find out what's going on with this font. It sounds like the guy just sort of abandoned the project. But I don't know. It almost sort of sounded like he was getting off on being the gatekeeper, and it, it's up to him whether this font lives or dies, you know? Just release it. Come on, Bruno. Get out of here, Bruno. All right, I got to... Uh, yeah, okay. So let me see. Yeah, look at this. In the, in the video... Yep, there's... I can take a screenshot of this. Yeah, there's the font. Excafon Light. Yeah, I'll take a screenshot. <laughs> Why not? do something with it anyway I, I I wish he would have you know done more then there's the bold and the italic what else does he have here let's see he has some other screenshots of it let's see a sketch of digitization that there's I Bruno very quickly just to start to handle the phone call, uh to see how it was behaving in text and um, it was functioning. So the light version, the bold version, and the light italic version. Very strange face, as you can see. Um, it just—it just—it just seems like it doesn't seem that strange to me. It's—it's—it's it's, it, it's exciting. It's different. I don't find it strange though. It just doesn't look like any other font particularly, but. Considering this guy's reputation, I don't know why they canceled the project. This, I unfortunately discovered that there were some... Uh, oh, don't worry about the inconsistencies, please. This, this perfectionism is, is, is really not, not becoming of, of, of creative types. So, in a somewhat similar uh, topic, you know I've always been a fan of... Uh, curating music, you know, like uh, I've always loved playing music on my shows. Of course, we have the other side here on the Overnightscape, in which I do play a lot of music. And traditionally speaking, I, I was not really able to play commercial music, but at the time, you know, like between, you know, like I started the show in 2003, and then, you know, for like the following 10 years, there was a really big push for the Creative Commons licensing, which uh, allowed for 
um, retaining the intellectual property rights to your music, but then allowing it to be shared. And so, considering that um, here in the Overnightscape, I'm it's a non-commercial project, and it is an, a compilation. That is, it's uh, it's presenting the songs in in complete form as part of a compilation. Uh, pretty much anything that's under a Creative Commons license is permissible, right? Uh, even the no derivatives uh, clause or the share-alike clause um, are not. So no derivatives means uh, does not count, including the complete work, right, uh, as part of a compilation. And also share-alike is only triggered when you trigger um, a, a, a derivative work, right? So, I mean, I've... I feel like I've pretty carefully tried to understand the Creative Commons rules. And so there's a great amount of uh, music that I can play here on the on the other side that I've discovered. I, you know, there's been thousands, tens or hundreds of thousands of songs released under Creative Commons licenses, which is amazing. Um, but, you know, even the oldest music until this year was still under copyright. Even music from the, you know, the end of the 1800s, the earliest recorded music that was released, was still copyrighted before January 1st, 2022. So, you know, I have did a lot of projects. You know, I did my um, Trash Am records, uh, trying to compile Creative Commons music. Also my 500-song trip from a number of years ago. Uh, but now I'm pretty much just focused on using that on my on the other side, right, which... I mean, when you consider that the other side is 80 to 82 minutes uh, a week of material, um, I, I do have a great need for audio content and, um, you know, continue to look for that kind of music along with audio clips and, you know, uh, of various sorts. Hold on, I need to get a new battery here. Okay, new batteries, nice. So when it comes to this, the, the Creative Commons licensed music, there's still some coming out, but I... I feel like the culture of creative uh, musicians are kind of uh, don't feel it's that important anymore. And like on Bandcamp, for example, you, most of the new stuff coming out has all rights reserved on it, and, and it's not Creative Commons anymore. Uh, so I feel that uh, curation is a hugely important thing. Um, that is, why would anyone go listen to this music? Most of it won't be to their taste. Most of it is not really very good, honestly. But there are so many hidden gems out there. But it really takes a, someone listening to hundreds or thousands of songs and finding the ones that they personally like. And then, of course, everyone's going to have a different perspective. There are some projects that some are still going of uh, compiling and finding uh, Creative Commons music. What's that one group online? I, oh, I can't remember their name. But... Um, and there's several that are that have done this, this these compilations, and I've used that in a way to sort of find stuff. But I find that their taste is very different than my taste, and it's most of the songs, even on those curated or compiled lists, are not to my taste. Um, so it's a lot of work to listen and to judge and decide, right? This stuff. So now, as as you may recall, PQ here on the channel told me last year that uh, there's a new law, Music Modernization Act, that would, January 1st, 2022, put into the public domain all music released in the United States up till the end of 1922. 
I didn't believe him at first because I had been following this issue for so many years, but apparently it was passed under the Trump administration a few years ago. And indeed, uh, this f- earlier this year, it's now late September 2022, January 1st, 2022, all this music entered the public domain. So I, uh, you know, I thought about, you know, this is a great resource uh, uh, of new music that unfortunately will require require a huge amount of effort to curate. And I've put a few songs here and there on the other side, but I hadn't really entered into any kind of a... Because um, it's, it's, a, it's a big project to try to find the good music. There's a lot on archive.org, and there's a, a collection called... Uh, hold on, I have it written down here. It is uh, 78 RPM Records Digitized by George Blood LP. And that's a company. It's a strange name, George Blood LP, Limited Partnership or something. But this is a company uh, 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 that is uh, releasing, and they've been doing this for a number of years, the 78s, and they say that their focus is on perhaps even uh, more obscure uh, 78s that other people wouldn't think to digitize or that wouldn't be a higher on their priority lists. So there's something like 44,000 digitized audio recordings just in the George Blood collection, which is the main collection of 78s, which was not public domain, which is all still copyrighted at some level or another. In theory, some of the Edison stuff was public domain, but it was just in theory. So anyway, um, I've been thinking about this, right? What can be done with this? Because there have to be... It's it's sort of this... uh, this opaque world of of music from from the early 1920s and of course all the way back to the beginning of recording that's now in the public domain that we can uh, do anything we want with now it gets weird because of you know internationally is it public domain in other countries I don't know if it was released in the US is it okay to release it in other countries the internet is international it's all very inter uh, after all but um so I really started thinking about it. I thought it would be really cool to have some sort of project to um, to work on this. And I realized that uh, I have enough on my plate as it is, but it would be good for me to at least start to go through this music to a limited degree to play on the other side. And um, I've started I, – I, I, dug a little bit deeper into the George Blood collection on the Internet Archive. And I found that they have uh, additional research on each page cross-referencing these releases with the release date, providing evidence when they were released, which is super important. Because a song that's from 1923, which will become public domain January 1st, 2023, um, is not public domain now, and you could potentially be sued by record companies for playing it. Anyway, this whole thing is ridiculous, but that's the way the law works. Anyway, um, because they have dates, not just a year, but they actually have actual dates. Many of them have an actual release date, like December 8th, 1922, or exact dates, or at least that it was evidence that it was released in, say, like December 1922, which is the most recent music that is public domain. And uh, so I figured... Why not focus in? So this is this is my my new 
view on this. Focus in on one month, right, and listen to all the songs. So turns out the, the songs in the George Blood collection that were released, that is, they have evidence, were released in December 1922. That's the most recent songs that are available in the public domain now. Why don't I listen to those? There's only 140 songs, and a lot of them are repeated. Uh, that they, they have uh, multiple copies. For example, if a better copy comes in of a 78, they'll digitize that. You know, they use a bunch of different styluses or styli. I'll just say styluses. I don't want to say styli. That thing of putting I at the end, just, just put another S at the end. What the hell? Um, and then they release the one that sa- they, they felt sounds the best. But they release all of them. Um, I've been I've been starting the process. I've gone through a few dozen of them now, and some of them are really quite good. the The major issue, of course, is the crackling, the popping, the hissing. Let me let me play a sample one for you. One of the more recent ones that I uh, let's see. So what I'm doing is I'm going through listening to all of them in order from December first to December thirty first, nineteen twenty two, and uh, you know, sort of deciding. Um, you know what is what is something I would consider playing on the other side you know and it it relates to the music itself do I like the song and then also how bad is the crackling the popping and the hissing here's one called Mr. Gallagher and Mr. Sheen this is from this this was released uh, December 9th 1922 Apparently this is related to some sort of comedy team. So this is something I would consider playing because I feel like this is... I feel like the crackling is not too bad, right? But it's just... Right? But this is good music. And again, I know... I I just want to start. Start the process. But like a song like this, it, 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 they, uh, well, it's been viewed 90 times. That's nine zero ninety 90 times. And uh, they released it last year in October. So they're, they're actively releasing new stuff all the time. But only 90 people seem to even look at this page. How many people are actually doing what I'm doing and starting to investigate this music that's now been released from the shackles of copyright? Right? And uh, how many people are doing anything like this? There's also the question of what can be done with this sound. There do seem to be some programs that can improve the sound quality, but again, this one doesn't is not too bad, but I mean, I'm sure some people wouldn't want to listen to this considering the hissing and the popping. Even though this one, again, is not too bad. And I know a little bit of that noise can add kind of a feel to it. Show notes. Hmm. 
Why is it not? Uh, yes. Copy. Co let me copy it, please. Because it seems like this untapped resource that uh, I'm starting to t try and tap it, but who has time for this kind of stuff, you know? Another wrinkle of some of the music that I've run into, not too much, but, uh, you know, there's some, some content that could be considered uh, offensive by today's standards, and that has to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. Right, this is public domain music right now. Oh, the shave and a haircut two bits thing. What did I just see run by there? Chipmunk? Shave and a haircut two bits. <laughs> Remember I was trying to research that? No one really knows where that came from, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, so... My, uh, so that's my process. I'm going to go month by month. I don't know if, I, not, I may just choose a random month. Maybe I'll go back to, like, 1910 next or something. Um... But uh, I don't know if any, is anyone else thinking about this, doing this. I mean, I started looking to see if other podcasters were doing anything like this. Or it's tough because it's like this flood of new content that has been made available. But there's a number of I think the curation aspect is the toughest. And then you know it's just it's just to my taste. What music do I really like, and do I feel would fit into the other side? You know. But I'm I'm working on. It. I thought I think it's an interesting. Uh, process and I'm going to keep working on it alright so later on now I'm on the porch got a new cigar going here it's the Punch 1840 Diablo Punch Diablo it's like beat up the devil Punch Diablo seems pretty good very promising I always like buying different cigars I never buy the same cigar twice I just buy different samplers and just enjoy the variety. So uh, last year for the garage sale, the music was okay. It was a it was an uh, Amazon Music uh, playlist. I think Mellow Eighties Gold or something. This time I figured, why not try from Soma FM, Illinois Street Lounge, which they describe as a classic bachelor pad, <laughs> classic bachelor pad, playful exotica and vintage music of tomorrow. Let's tune in and see what they're. They're playing now. And it turned out to be perfect music for a garage sale. Wow. Good stuff. This is a Mo Monitor Mambo by Pyrez Prado. Never heard of that group or person. But it was definitely really good background music. It really served the purpose of garage sale music. All right, enough of that. Um, you know, it was it was always pleasant. It was stuff I enjoyed hearing, and it was sort of in the background. It didn't really. It was not overwhelming. You know, let me take the label off this cigar here. Red and black, and silver. Ah, uh, yeah. So anyway, you know, every year I try to sell one thing. <laughs> well, this is only the second year, but last year I, I something that had some meaning to me. I wanted to sell something. Last year it was a deck of cards from uh, Sleep No More. That remember that that thing? Does that even still exist? You don't really hear about it, but I love uh, Jeff from Houston. I went with him a couple times to sleep no more. 
it's a theater event where you, where you wander around inside this weird haunted hotel wearing a mask. <laughs> it's good stuff. Come on. Um, and so this year um, I decided to sell uh, my unicorn meat. And uh, this is a product from uh, Think Geek. Remember this Think Geek? It was a store. It was a website, and then it became an actual physical store. They were bought by, I think they were bought by um, GameStop, you know, sort of the the last of those mall video game stores that I think still exists, you know. I think Electronics Boutique back in the day, or Games and Gadgets, those kind of stores. Or even Funko Land. Um, yeah, Think Geek was a, a cool, I mean, I, I, I think some of their st- stuff was tiresome and i think that um geek culture can can get a bit tiresome to me i think you know the nerd or geek label you know used to be rather pejorative it was negative it was not positive right if you were into comic books and science fiction and and things like that you were considered like an idiot you were like a jerk you know you were a geek uh, and we sort of, you know, and I've always been in that realm, always wore it sort of as a badge of honor. And it's been rather puzzling how it all has turned mainstream now. Uh, all this sort of geekery of video games, comic books, and science fiction, everything, Doctor Who, everything now is all mainstreamed. And, um, you know, and I understand, like, their humor and their products. It, it's actually, so talk about a scene. I mean, Think Geek was kind of a... Um, you know, they did all these jokes and gags and had these products. It was its own little thing. It kind of a uh, now sort of passed. Apparently, Think Geek was shut down in 2019 by GameStop. But they still they used to have those stores. Like I remember in uh, by Herald Square in New York, like around Broadway and 34th, there was a GameStop and had a Think Geek in the basement. Um, I don't know if they shut those down. But they always had this April Fool's thing. Remember a few years ago, like, April Fool's was a big thing on the Internet, and then it kind of, like, died down. But they would always make up fake products. So one of them, apparently in 2010, and this is something I, I didn't get into the 2010 topic this week on the Central, uh, was a unicorn meat. And it was it was a, a can meant to look like some sort of Hormel pork or something, kind of slightly tapered can. Um, definitely not like the spam can, which is more of like an oval. Uh, but as a uh, as an April Fool, so April first, twenty ten, what a long time ago now. They uh, they introduced unicorn meat as a fake product, <clears throat> and they just had a big a picture of this big slab of meat with like sparkles in it and stuff. And you know, even at the time, it's just getting kind of tiresome. You know, the kind of the usage of unicorns in that kind of geek culture. Oh, they shit rainbows or, you know, whatever. Like, it got to be a bit much. What was that game? There was a game where you played as a unicorn that shot lasers out of its eyes. And there's this, I don't know, what, what would you call that kind of, um, that aesthetic, which is kind of gone now. There was a game, I remember I used to, it was like, it was, it was like a, a forced running game, you know, like you kept running and you had to like jump. What the hell was that game? But that kind of, like, Adult Swim, the cartoon thing where they were... It's its a certain kind of aesthetic that it seemed tiresome at the time, but now that it's kind of passed to a degree... And I guess, like, yeah, I guess, like, 
Tim and Eric Lawson show great job also uh, touched on that aesthetic as sort of like an 80s I think I think it was sort of the aesthetic of kids that are about 10 or 15 years younger than me like the millennials right yeah definitely like millennial humor like so unicorn meat uh I don't know. I feel like I'm touching on something that needs further investigation, but I don't know if I'm the one to do it. As these kind of trends that seem kind of tiresome at the time sort of are then passed, um, there's, you know, need to preserve or analyze it. <laughs> anyway, so it was a fake product. It wasn't even a real product. It was just for April Fool's. Oh, look what we're selling now. Unicorn meat. All right, you know. And meanwhile, I wonder... You know, in in the common understanding, unicorns are not real. But I wonder how many people know that. Like I, I worry about people <laughs> that they're kind of like not into, they're not informed or intelligent anymore. Like there's a lot of people are dumb that are out there. You know what I'm saying? Like wouldn't like I know unicorns aren't real in that sense, but the stupid people out there, and I know it sounds terrible to use that term, but what are what are you going to use a euphemism for stupidity? Uh, they they might not know. They may think it is really unicorn meat. You know, they may think unicorns are real. And that they're oh my god, they're killing these unicorns. It, it makes you wonder, right? And it makes me wonder. Wait, isn't that stairway to heaven? Yes. What is that backwards? And it makes me wonder. I love Satan. <laughs> no, that's a different part of the song. Anyway, Zeppelin man. Um, what, what was I reading about Robert Plant recently? Oh, I think he has a new album out or something. Or he's back with that bluegrass woman. Um, what's her name? Allison Krauss, I think. I saw something about that. I would really don't have any interest. Though I did, I did like some of his solo albums, Robert Plant. I know what it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was thinking of his his album Twenty Nine Palms, or there's a song called Twenty Nine Palms. Yeah. Anyway, Robert Plant. Anyway, it makes you want. Uh, so anyway, let's just go back. So back around, I would say it was 2010 or 2011. I was working at this financial marketing company over on Third Avenue, and uh, I was uh, working with this guy who was kind of like a psycho, like really like a psychopath. He I, he was like a weird guy, but he, but he he definitely had all the hall- hallmarks of a narcissistic sociopath psychopath kind of guy and he would buy everyone presents which was super weird and inappropriate so he was he used to shop a lot at think geek and uh this one woman i work with uh, he bought her that unicorn meat the same one i had have i didn't sell it um so what happened was think geek put it on their website april 1st 2010 and they got sued by the national pork board remember there was a whole thing where they were trying to sell more pork and they called it the other white meat so i think as a parody of it think geek called unicorn the other white meat and the pork people sued them even though it wasn't even a real product i just read an article about this i remember i kind of remembered it was a april fool's thing that became a real product so that's something they did. They do an April Fool's, and then if there was enough interest, they would actually make it into a real product. So November of 2010, they released it as a real product. And what was inside the can 
which kind of does look like a uh, hello, kind of does look like a an actual like potted meat product. Is that what they call it? Potted meat, a can of meat. You don't have to refrigerate it. You stick it on your shelf like spam. Listen, I'm out of that game. I'm I've been vegan for a number of years now. Even even before I was vegetarian since '87. So I don't I don't go for that kind of stuff. Though I do remember eating that kind of stuff. Like uh, I've had spam when I, before I became vegetarian and corned beef hash and deviled ham and Vienna sausages, all that kind of stuff. So I, I had it when I was younger. So, you know, I still remember what it tastes like. I can recall the taste of Vienna sausage. Not super flavorful, but you know. anyway, I, I don't miss it. I don't miss being in the, in the meat scene. Talk about a scene. I don't want to be in that meat scene. So they, they released it. The can looked the same as in the picture, but inside was sort of a a chopped up unicorn, like the head was cut off, the torso, and the, four, and the two front legs, the two back legs, all sort of jammed in there. A very, very dark humor, not for kids. Um, so yeah, this psycho guy like bought it for this this uh, woman I work with. It was weird. I was buying everyone product, like pr- like presents and products and stuff. It was weird. Wh- whatever. I don't even want to know whatever happened to that guy. That guy was really annoying. True psycho. I, I really have, uh, rarely have I worked with someone as psychotic as that. Anyway, uh, and he was there for like a couple of years. It was so annoying. Anyway, he also was the one that bought this thing called the Annoyatron, this little like computer chip that would just make these weird noises like every hour. And one of these guys I worked with, he, you know, the Mac computers, you can open it up. You could open the door, like those towers, and he, he sort of glued it to the inside of this guy's computer. And the guy was, like, going nuts trying to figure out, like, what this what was going on. Now, you know, there are some offices, like uh, someone I know, his brother works in an office where they're constantly doing pranks on each other, you know. And um, there's some offices like that, that there, there's these practical jokes, but some offices aren't. This was not a practical joke office. I think this guy, this psycho guy, was like hoping it might become like a, a, a practical joke office, but it did not. Most offices are not like that. It, it, they, they do not have practical jokes going on. Anyway, so he would do things like that, and he was really into this stuff. Anyway, that was my introduction to Unicorn Meat. And then a number of years ago, on the Anything But Monday show, Mad Mike gave me some Unicorn Meat. I don't, I don't, I, I'd have to go back to check out which one it was, but I think it may have been one. Somewhere in the 20 teens, you know, <laughs> 2014, 2016, some some year like that. So I figured, you know, I I don't, you know, I I'm, I might try and sell it. But I, even though people looked at it, they people today were confused by it. They weren't familiar with it. They just found it odd and off-putting, and no one bought it. We weren't charging a lot. We we're charging like two dollars or one dollar for it. Nothing, you know. No interest. So that's unfortunate. So now I still have my unicorn meat. Oh, well, I tried to sell it. <laughs> I would, you know, anyway. Another thing we had, which was interesting, was the deluxe metal bingo cage set. Uh, you know when you do, when you play bingo, there's that spherical, it's like, a, it's like a sphere cage that you have all those little balls in, and you mix it up, you, you, you turn it. Then you take the ball out, and you call out the number, like, B, B, B12, or B11, 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 you know. That's actually, uh, there was a quote like that on uh, a Boards of Canada song. Yeah. Anyway, 
Um, and this kid came, and he was, like, obsessed with this. He, he saw it. He just wanted it. He was, like, whining and crying. And and his mother refused to get it for him because he was being so psychotic. Talk about being a psycho. This kid was, like, <laughs> like really flipping out, like, losing it, you know, because he wanted this metal bingo cage. And I, I kind of related. Like, I, I, even though it's not really a toy for children, like, I can imagine being that age and being a, seeing it and just wanting it. I, I can totally imagine that. But a woman came by and she and she bought it. A lot, I think the next day. Um, so yeah, we bought, we sold a lot of stuff. I think she just wants to play some bingo, you know. Anyway. So anyway, but we we did we did sell a lot of stuff, so it was kind of cool the the yearly garage sale situation. Oh, I wanted to say I did send an email to that guy Bruno, the guy with the font. Yeah, I. Uh, I, I doubt he'll write back, but I, I wrote him asking, you know, is he going to release the font and saying he probably should release the font. And I suggested doing the same thing as they did with that other font, he, you know, doing the original version and then his reimagined version, his interpreted version. I mean, I don't know this this Bruno person, I, I Bruno Bernard. I, I just, you know, I just sort of feel like he made a lot of noise about this font and now he hasn't released it. Just release a damn font, Bruno. What do you want me to say? I appreciate I appreciate his uh, his interest in the topic, but for him to sort of tease everyone with this incredible font and then like not release it five years later, six years later, right? Because yeah, he start, he made a big big deal about it in 2017. Just release the damn font. <laughs> I'm not asking him to release it for free. Just charge money for it. I'll buy it. What the hell. It looks like an amazing font from an amazing designer. Anyway, we'll, I'll let you know if I hear back from Bruno Bernard. I doubt it, though. I doubt it. I think he's moved on in life since his ex book days. Anyway, there's a... there's a uh, Oh, my God, I almost burnt myself with this cigar. Let me put it down for a second here. I'm getting very discombobulated. Um... Another product, which <laughs> it's like Think Geek, was you know T A capital T H I N K, no space capital G E E K. You know that whole thing of putting a capital letter in the middle of the word. That was sort of parodied in, in that movie Existence. Remember Existence? Um, anyway, uh, I, I think that usage is kind of passe. But anyway, there's a product called Right Rice. Which does the same thing, right? Rice and the second, the cap. It's one. It's there's no space, but the rice is capitalized. Anyway, this is a product that we got a couple times, and I made it, and I didn't really think too much of it. But I've been. Ha- I, I we got a. F- I, I saw it at this store, and I bought it uh, like last month, I guess. And then uh, I really been liking it, but I, I didn't put anything on it. I just make it, and it's like. So what it is? It's like. Uh, a vegetable rice it's not it's 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 not like that cauliflower rice it's it comes in these these black packets this is like the garlic herb flavor but there's other flavors it's all vegan Are, uh, this is what it says delicious nutritious easy to cook our new grain is packed with the power of vegetables we found a way I don't know what that means <laughs> I guess they're, they're implying that it's hard to make rice out of vegetables, I guess. Maybe. We love rice. 
That's what inspired us to create a blend of over 90% nutritious vegetables plus rice into a tasty grain that gives you more plant-based protein and fiber. Now you can soak up great sauces, complement courses, and inspire your next meal all on a carb-friendly diet. Enjoy garlic herb right rice, circle R, trademark, with fresh herb flavors and a well-rounded garlic finish. See more of what's right at rightrice.com. So what you do is, so I usually make two of these at once, and then I, I have it over the course, you know, several meals of it. And uh, so you just uh, you boil the water, and then you throw the right rice in there, and then you, then you turn off the heat, and you just let it soak, you let it like soak in the, that boiling water um, for twelve minutes. They say you can cook it in twelve minutes, but they don't <laughs> they don't count the time it takes to boil the water, which should be part of the time. Which it, it, that takes a few minutes to boil too. Um, you ever notice when they say, oh, easy, two-minute recipe? It's it's never from the beginning of you thinking you you want to have this to the point where you're eating it. It's not that amount of time. It's more. Let stand, cover 12 minutes, off the heat, fluff with a fork, and let sit two to three more minutes and enjoy. It's gluten-free, vegan, kosher, a complete protein, and has a low glycemic index. I'm not really sure what that means, but anyway. Distributed by Betterer Foods. It's better than better. It's betterer. <laughs> what? So yeah. So the the ingredients here. It's a blend of lentils, chickpeas, uh, peas, and and rice. So two kinds of peas: peas and chickpeas. And then all the other stuff that's in the uh, the flavoring here. Anyway, I just have to say I've been kind of obsessed with this lately. I, I've, I've been I've been having a lot of right rice. I usually don't put anything on. I just put some uh, chipotle powder on it, and that's it. Maybe sometimes a little bit of hot sauce, but anyway, I, I really like it, and it seems slightly more healthy than some of the usual pasta or whatever I eat. So anyway, uh, yeah, and it's easy to make. Oh yeah, how about the sodium? Because like all those like noodles and stuff I get, everything has like a zillion, a ton of sodium. Well, this does, you know, this has. A decent amount of sodium as well, so what do you want? What do you want? Everything has a lot of sodium in it. Ever notice when they why why do they say sodium? Because it's you know, it's sodium chloride is what we're talking about, table salt. So why don't they say how much chlorine is in this, you know? Why do they just say sodium? There's chlorine involved too. I know it doesn't sound right. It, it it's one of the miracles of nature. How does an explosive metal like sodium and this toxic gas known as known as uh, chlorine how do they combine into this this these tasty little rocks that you you put in everything it's magic actually let me look that up i really wonder why they say sodium instead of sodium and chlorine all right i did a bit of research on that and uh Apparently, chloride is perfectly healthy. Chlorine is is not unhealthy, but the sodium they're saying is unhealthy. Uh, and there's other kinds of salt besides sodium chloride. Um, so I guess if they listed it as salt, it wouldn't really be accurate. And the chlorine is no big deal, so I guess it's the sodium that's considered unhealthy. But why don't they say sodium chloride? I don't know. Someone, one of them said that it's actually the chlorine that tastes that gives salt its flavor. 
Who knew? Because when you smell chlorine, like in you know, in like a pool, it doesn't really smell very salty, does it? This topic is making me very salty. You know, when they say you're you're you're, you're salty, you're angry, you're bugged. That's why there's salt threads um, and pepper threads. A salt thread is where, where where you're encouraged to be angry and speak in all caps, and the pepper thread is where you want to say what you like about the thing. Usually, uh, video games. There's pepper threads and salt threads. Anyway, oh, I don't know. What do you want sodium? Whatever happened to the concept of the sodium bungalow? Remember that? I think that was in Anything But Monday magazine. It was like our, our fake classified ads where someone was selling a sodium bungalow. A highly explosive metallic uh, house. A sodium bungalow. Hey, that was our that was our form of humor. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> anyway. anyway, I want to thank you so much for patching into this episode of The Overnightscape. It is much appreciated. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Frank. Frank Edward Nora. We're here in the Onsug, a radio station inside a book. Just go to onsug.com for all your Onsug needs. That's O N S U G. So our project project is called the T H E space O N S U G. It, it's not one of those things where it's one word with a capital in the middle. No, the which is a normal word, and then Onsug, which is not a normal word, but it stands for Overnight Skate Underground. So yeah, at onsug.com, you can buy the book. It is a an actual publication you can buy made of paper and and ink and all those kinds of things. It's print on demand. It, I, th- I think they make it in a book machine in uh, Delaware. Uh, grab a copy. And I am planning on a, a new edition next year, 2023. That is my plan, at least. And uh, you can download a PDF for free from there as well. Also, you can uh, listen to all of our episodes here on the Onsug we're approaching 13,000 hours or a year and a half of audio. And that's a ton of audio. That's just a massive amount of audio. Who else has such a big archive of audio? We're very uh, dedicated to archiving and preserving all of our shows uh, because we really, and, and we are really focused in on people listening in the near and far future. We want people listening in the far future. We want to preserve our episodes. Uh, one person I, t- I described it to described, oh, it's like a message in a bottle. In a way, but hopefully it's not as random as that. Hopefully, <laughs> I, I understand, just like I was talking about, things might gain more context and more importance later on. I think our shows here on the Onshug uh, will become more, the, 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 the perception of them, I think, will change over time. As I do think we're li- we're living in an incredibly interesting point of history. We're after after the 20th century, but before the AI revolution or AGI revolution, as I was talking about earlier. It's a, I think it's a very interesting time, and it's also pre-disclosure, where we learn about the true nature of our world, the world we live on, and the true nature of Jupiter and all that jazz. So anyway, we're so I I do think that soaking in this type of environment. Um, hearing people's perspectives on things, I think will be very interesting in the future. Uh, so, you know, beyond that, we're a totally non-commercial project, as I touched on earlier, and uh, we have this sort of a unique uh, rambling style where there's no particular topic. We just talk about whatever we want to talk about. 
Though there is a topic each week on Overnightscape Central, a show you can participate in. Just go to onsug.com and listen to the latest episode. And you are encouraged to join in, record some audio, and uh, send it in to Mr. PQ River out there in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. This week's topic is uh, the year 2010. We've done a number of, of year-based uh, ones. I was talking about a ton of stuff on 2010. It was an interesting year, both personally and uh, history-wise. It's a long time ago now, and of course, the unicorn meat came out in 2010. Now, let me add that. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't add that. I, I didn't know about that when I was uh, doing the recording. Yeah, and as I mentioned, we're sort of, you know, I am looking forward to when we can inhabit the metaverse with the Onsug and create a, create a building in the shape of the book. I think that'd be pretty cool. It'd be like a giant book and you just go inside of it. And our studios are inside the book. A radio station inside a book. You see? I like it. Anyways, now is the time to turn our ears towards the other kind of place. It's how your audio garden grows. You know, in terms of weird sounds, you reaps what you sows. Does that rhyme? <laughs> that may not rhyme, but this surely does. Welcome. The door is opening slowly, and the light of the mysterious inside, known as the other side. It's on extra for Tuesday, August 1st, 1995. How would you like to give Heather Locklear, Andrew Shue, or Daphne Zuniga advice on what their characters should do on Melrose Place? Well, move over, Melrose, because these five are the stars of a soap opera on computers, where you can give them feedback anytime you want. It's called The Spot, and it's the first interactive episodic series on the worldwide system of connected computers known as the Internet. And here's how it works. You log into The Spot's address on the Internet where you read past and present storylines that are combined with video on a daily basis in an innovative way that you've never seen. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Digital images like these and information files help fans follow the comings and goings of five people who live in a house in Santa Monica, California. And just like Melrose Place, you'll find everything from love affairs to pure gossip. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to watch you get dressed! Creator Scott Zacharin believes his show offers fans something primetime TV programs can't. The chance to read whatever stories they want and to talk by computer with their favorite characters through electronic messages known as email. We are able to put things out there that television never could. You can get inside our characters' souls. Fresh entries for the addict. You can then turn around and email a character and give them advice. They'll write back to you and then you can find out that you affected the story. Uh, I don't think Aaron Spelling can do that yet. When you're standing on the moon, the world doesn't look so big. Isn't it a beautiful planet? And full of different people and places. It's a pretty ball. Sort of a big blue marble. The Earth's a big blue marble when 
state in the United States until Alaska joined the Union in 1959. They still think big, though, like having the first World Invitation Minicycle Championship. Right. Kids from all over the world are competing. Because that's the traditional time slot for cult movies, weird, offbeat, bizarre films that their fanatic audiences attend ritualistically time and time again. What makes shock treatment unusual is that this is the first tailor-made cult film. It was specifically produced to attract moviegoers who only come out after midnight. To really understand shock treatment, you have to start here at the Biograph Theater on Chicago's Lincoln Avenue, where a movie named The Rocky Horror Picture Show plays every weekend at midnight. The kids know all the lines by heart, and they dress up like the movie's characters and act out the movie's scenes on the stage of the theater. The new movie Shock Treatment was produced by many of the same people who made Rocky Horror Picture Show, and they hope lightning will strike twice. Both movies have exactly the same formula, an odyssey by a super straight middle class couple into a bizarre underworld where science runs wild. You need to beat it. Ooh, shock treatment. This character is Richard O'Brien. He wrote both Rocky Horror and Shock Treatment, and in Shock Treatment, he plays the mad scientist. But what'll I do? What'll I say? Hmm? What'll I wear? But when you see a scene like this, somehow you just know that the makers of Shock Treatment hope it'll capture the Rocky Horror audience. That kids will want to dress up like these new characters and the shock treatment will become another midnight cult classic. And a little black dress is what the makers of shock treatment hope that a lot of gals and guys will be wearing in the audience of this movie as they dance in the aisles and turn it into an instant cult classic. Will shock treatment follow in Rocky Horror's footsteps and play for years at midnight? Well, I don't think so for a couple of reasons. One, because the Rocky Horror audience is fanatically loyal. They're not about to abandon a movie they spent the last three years of their lives in memorizing. And two, because, to put it bluntly, Shock Treatment just isn't a very good movie. It's too obviously just a retread of Rocky Horror. They're going to have to memorize two scripts here. 
It's a never-ending task. Now, this Rocky yeah, Horror Show, I mean, it continues yeah. at its same pace, right? Well, this is a this sequel, except that they have different actors playing the characters. No, but I mean, the original Rocky Horror Show, I mean, Oh, it's yeah, still they're still up there on Lincoln Avenue. Yeah, yeah, they have all the lines, have all the costumes. You can drive past a little before midnight and see them lined up tomorrow. Here's the sound. The sound. The organ sound. I do got to do it.
They're painted yellow like the dolls See the child who sits in wonder At this brightly coloured scene See the clown who makes the children laugh As he spins around and shows them all his tricks Oh how I wish I were a little boy again Living in a child's dream See the mountains made of ice cream With cherries dotted on their slopes And over there's a chocolate tree trunk Big leaves are hanging from the boughs Fiddler's flea, by gosh. <laughs> 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 Say, 
Hank's boy, the one they call Hank? Yes. He went to New York, you know. Yes. Well, he's in jail. No. Yes. What for? Stealing. No. Yes. I want to know. I tell you, them is all fired past patrol wagons in New York City. Run by that electricity, eh? Don't know what is. All I know is they put round this boy in one chicken safari in 15 minutes. It'll take him a year to get back. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I always told old Rollins he was making a great mistake sending that boy to the city. What he loud was for education. What did he learn down to city? Well, he learned to be bad, but I guess he went to learn to be a civilized engineer. Well, I do declare. Well, as have you got that air jug ready, I'll go on and let you shut up shop. Here it is. Good evening, Squire. Good night, Henry. Madge, meet Frank, my cat. Hello, Frank, my cat. Oh, those hands look like something Frank dragged in. Oh, what'll I try? <laughs> Everything and use palm olive dishwashing liquid. It softens your hands while you do the dishes. You're soaking in it. Dishwashing liquid? It's palm olive. Mild? More than mild. Makes loads of suds that last. And no kidding, palm olive softens hands while you do the dishes. Madge, mm. palm olive's great. You're an angel. Oh, well, is my halo on straight? <laughs> <laughs> Altitude, velocity, light. In and down. 220 feet. 15 forward. 11 forward, coming down nicely. 200 feet. Four and a half down. Five and a half down. 260 feet. Six and a half down. Five and a half down. Nine forward. Good. 20 feet. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward. Five percent. 185. 875 feet. That's looking good, down a half. Six forward. 60 seconds. Lights on. Six. Down two and a half. Forward. Forward. Up. 40 feet down, two and a half. Picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down. Straight shadow. Four forward. Four forward, drift into the right a little. Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward, drift. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot.
Romantic, there is Club Med. For the incredibly wild, there is the club that's mad. Private Resort, where two eager guys can resort to their most private fantasies. I'm telling you, this is the place to be. Four days made in heaven, and it's all theirs. Oh, look at that. Now they can worship the sun and weep, rejuvenate their bodies. I'm in love. Meet stimulating people. Yeah. Be free with me, Rockalama. And bear their souls. You must lose your artificial layers. You mean my clothes. I beg your pardon? Dance, dance. Would you care to dance? Oh, what? Dance, dance. Hey, it's the broad's death. It's the perfect escape, whether you're on the wrong side of the law. Give me that time. Or on the flip side of reality. Excellent cut. This place is insane. We stopped my diamond. Come it's on. the great getaway. It's gotta be your life. For all kinds of action. Come join the feast. Go ahead. Just dive right in. You'll want to stay forever. This place always this crowded. Wait till we get to the sauna. <laughs> Private Resort, the third in the private school private lesson saga. Now you can get away with everything. Whoa, a mom and a dad. I'm home. <laughs> You're watching the new movie channel, the place for full-time movie entertainment. Our next feature is The Comancheros, a Texas Ranger and a gambler set out to bring in a gang of renegades in this action-packed western. John Wayne and Stuart Whitman star. I am telling you how to save the lives of 600 men. The target. We're taking command of this ship, Captain. Nobody's going to get hurt if they do exactly what they're told. The plan. We want the British government to pay us a ransom. If anyone takes any action against us, everything goes up immediately. The mission. If I say I will get my men to the wheelhouse unobserved, I will do so. If you want action, nothing will go wrong. If you want danger, now have the money here on time or the whole North Sea will be on fire. If you want adventure, you want folks. Roger Moore, James Mason, Anthony Perkins, Michael Parks, folks. Have I ever let you down?
I went to the agents in Hollywood and they said, you have a weird accent, you have a weird body, forget it, you know, just keep doing your bodybuilding. And uh, so uh, those are the kind of things that really motivate me and the challenge is big then and then I have to plan out a, a way of getting there and turn my vision that I have into reality. If one
Welcome to the Congo, where you are in hot pursuit of Bongo the Gorilla, climbing up steep cliffs, jumping across waterfalls, avoiding treacherous coconuts, and on the upper cliffs, jumping up and down to keep the monkeys off your back before they gang up on you and throw you over. Once you reach the top, you can move on to Snake Lake, Rhino Ridge, and Lazy Lagoon. Congo Bongo, it's a bloody good adventure, mate. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Kevin. 
The laughs are on the next Mike Douglas show because Beretta's Robert Blake is co-hosting. I laugh at life. I mean, I think the whole thing is a joke. While Dallas's Victoria Principal introduces her new husband. Have you had any any heated arguments thus far? Should we tell them the truth? And Tiny Tim asks the musical question. You and you think I'm sexy. Mike makes your day Monday at 3.30 here on 2. This is the Provincial Broadcast Service of the Ontario Educational Communications Authority.